0: Okay, if Area 1 is ready, we're ready to start answering. Okay.
1: Hi. Hi, my name is Steve Check. I'm from Costa Mesa, California. My question is regarding stock options. I've taken your suggestion and have been attempting to subtract stock option compensation from reported income when evaluating companies. When I read annual reports, I usually find companies estimating option costs using the Black-Skulls model. However, the assumptions going into the Black-Skulls model seem quite different from company to company. These assumptions, of course, are what is used for risk-free interest rates, quote-unquote, risk-free interest rates, expected option lives, even though options have stated lives, and expected volatility. Help me out a little bit. What is the best way to calculate option costs Do you think black skulls is appropriate? If so, how should we normalize the assumptions? And just one short follow-up, how can we possibly estimate future earnings for companies when companies such as even Microsoft last week, in response to a lower stock
0: price, simply reissue a bunch of new options? Yeah, the, um, I can tell you from some personal experience that companies attempt to use the Lowest figure they can, even though it doesn't hit the income account. So they like to they like to make fairly short assumptions as to the as to the life of the options, even though they're granted on a ten-year basis, because they'll make certain assumptions about exercise date or or, or uh, forfeiture and so on. Uh, I think the most appropriate way, when you've got a pattern, which you have at many companies, of what they do on options, is simply to make an educated guess as to the average option issuance that they're going to incur or they're going to elect to do over time. And uh, generally, I mean, what you, what you really wanted, if, if you were to be precise, you would try to figure out what they could have sold those options for in the open market. Because that's, that's, that is the opportunity cost of giving them to the employees instead of, instead of selling the same option uh, in the market. Uh, I think you'll find generally that if you take a value of about a third for 10-year options, if you take a value of about a third. Obviously, it depends on dividend rate and volatility, a whole bunch of things. But about a third of the of the market value strike price at the time they issued—that's the expectable cost. We believe in using the expectable cost versus the actual cost. I mean, that is how we would look at it. If we were issuing options at Berkshire, and we issued options on. million worth of stock a year, we would figure it was costing us, probably in our case with no dividend, at least $35 million a year to issue those options. And we would figure that if we gave people $35 million in some other form of of, uh, results-oriented compensation, that it would be a wash. And that is not the way most managements, of course, uh, figure at least that's my experience and we and we would figure we could use that thirty five million uh, in a more shareholder oriented way and one where the employee was productive would be sure of getting uh, results as opposed to having it be at the whims of the market uh, um, And I think you'll see a lot of option repricing. everybody says they won't reprice their options until they do it and uh, I mean you, you'll see that with a lot of schemes. I you know, it, it will be interesting to see whether Conseco is willing to bankrupt all the executives who who uh, uh, made loans to buy the stock and had those loans guaranteed by the company, and the, you know, the company initially said they would uh, enforce those loans, and uh, we'll, we'll see whether they do it. I would say in many cases they won't. I don't know what Conseco will do. But a lot of things that are said in connection with executive uh, in, in option schemes and that sort of thing. Uh, or what they'll do if it works in their favor, and then they'll do something else if it doesn't work in their favor, and that's not spelled out in, in the initial approval that's that's granted. Uh, Charlie, you want have anything to add? On?
2: Well, Warren's somewhat critical attitude is very understated compared to mine.
0: <laughs> 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 We're going to leave raisins out of this particular <laughs> <laughs> analysis. <laughs> Let's go to uh, Area 2. We do believe, incidentally, I mean, if a company is going to end up giving out 10% of the 10 year, you know, over a 10-year period, or 15% on options, you know, that, that is like buying an apartment house and letting the seller keep a 10 or 15% interest in the upside. Or it's like buying an oil field and giving some somebody a 10 or 15% interest-free override. It changes the value of the property. Make no mistake about it. it it is a it has a huge economic impact on the value of a property. And just go out and try and, you know, sell your house and say I want to keep fifteen percent of the appreciation in it, you know, from uh, and ask the buyer whether he's going to pay the same price for the house. Options subtract value the moment they are granted. And like I say, unless companies some companies follow a practice of making a mega grant every three or four or five years. A lot of them just issue a fairly constant amount annually, and you can figure out the cost. And, and you know they don't want to tell the shareholders there's a cost, and that's why they fought through Congress and everything else in order to prevent it from, from being the truth. But you know Galileo had that problem many years ago and finally went out, so maybe we will too. <laughs> yeah, area two. My name is Dennis
1: Jean-Jacques from Chatham, New Jersey. I first would like to thank you personally for taking the time out of your busy schedule to visit MBA students throughout the country on a regular basis. In fact, I consider your visit to the Harvard Business School campus many years ago my personal rational awakening. My question is in regard to Dunn and Bradstreet. Many academics would argue that two of, of the many factors that determine a firm's sustainable competitive advantage are the threat of new interest through imitation and the threat of substitution through technological advances, such as, you know, the internet and things of that nature. My question is, how deep is the moat around Moody's and the operating company?
0: Yeah, we don't want to go into too much detail about uh, our marketable investments, but I would say that the moat is, just in our view, uh, is far, Wider, deeper, and and infested with far more poisonous uh, characters in the case of Moody's than in the case of the operating company. It, uh, if you've had experience, just in terms of making decisions about how you either obtain credit information in the case of the operating company, or if you uh, or if you want to obtain ratings on securities or something, I think you'd conclude that that Moody's uh, is a much stronger franchise than the operating company. Doesn't mean the operating company can't turn out to be a better business. It might have more upside under certain circumstances too. But if you're really thinking of, you know, what bad can happen to you, I think that you would regard Moody's as a considerably stronger franchise than the operating company. Charlie? Uh,
2: Well, I certainly agree. The Moody's is a little like Harvard. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, you know, I hate to think of how much you could mismanage Harvard
0: now and still have it work out pretty well. If you cut the price of the admission to the Harvard Business School by $10,000 a year, uh, you would have less demand in all probability than, uh, than an increase in demand. I mean, it's totally counterintuitive in that respect, because it's the cachet of the school for in 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 that case is, is it's not only reinforced it's almost it almost makes it necessary that it be priced toward the top so it, you can throw away the demand and supply curves that they teach you in economics 101 on something like that i frequently i have a little fun with when i attend business schools because i ask them you know what the definition of a wonderful business is and we go through all this stuff and then i say you know i tell them that really the best business I've seen is the, you know, is the Harvard Business School or the Stanford Business School because the, the more they increase the price, the more people want to get in and the more people think the product is worth. And that is a marvelous position to be in. Uh, and I thank you for your comments on, on the, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have a great, great teacher in, in Ben Graham at Columbia. And and ben, ben didn't need to go up to Columbia once a week on Thursday afternoon to talk to a bunch of us. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it, I really feel it's, it that uh, I enjoy sort of passing that along. I, I haven't had any original ideas in this field at all, but I, I, you know, I had a terrific teacher, and it's fun to talk to, uh, to students. It, uh, if you talk to a bunch of guys my age, nothing happens. I mean, they just want to be entertained. <laughs> but they want predictions always and that sort of thing. So I don't do any of that at all. I'd rather talk to students And than I thank you for coming. Let's go to number three.
3: 15 from St. Louis. Are you considering investing in energy and transportation companies, such as ones that deal with fuel cell and environmentally friendly energy resources? And if you are, will you thus be replacing any other energy-based investments you may currently hold, such as your newly acquired holdings in mid-American energy?
4: Now, we,
0: I would say that energy and transportation in the very broad sense are both things that we've at least got a chance of understanding. So those are the kind of areas in which if we would – we would be – we would think about making investments. We would probably think about it less in connection with new technology. Uh, we we might expect the people who run MidAmerican Energy to be thinking about that all the time. but. Sh- Charlie would be better at it than I am because he has a different background uh, and thinks better about that anyway. Uh, In terms of evaluating newer technologies, I wouldn't be very good at it at all. Uh, But those fields are—they're in uh, the—they're big in terms of capital investment for one thing, so they're very big fields. And then secondly, um, we—we would probably think we were capable of evaluating the, the, the potential. Some years down the road of many companies in energy uh, and transportation so that those would be fields we would consider and of course as you mentioned we made an investment in mid-american energy um, i doubt if the technology changes dramatically in in any near term as to the product that they're delivering but if there were changes on the horizon i think we've got the management there that would be very good at, at 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 spotting that ahead of time and capitalizing on it the proper way. I wouldn't I wouldn't take that function on myself, Charlie.
2: Well, historically we've done very little in either field. And mostly the past is a pretty good guide to the future.
0: Historically, the the transportation field for I mean it's been a terrible place to have money and uh, uh, whether it's been in airlines or or in uh, in the rails, if, if you, we've mentioned value line from here from time to time. If if you if you go to the the rail transportation section and just run your eye across on the revenues and look at the capital investment, the the amount of, the amount of capital required to produce incremental revenues is just is is horrible and. Uh, On the other hand, there's not much alternative here in the game to doing that. So there, many railroads will spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, and it will not move the top line uh, hardly at all. Uh, The ones where the top line has changed is where there's been acquisitions or mergers. Airlines, you see, just the you see this great movement in the top line, but uh, but again, a disastrous amount of capital investment and very little in the way of returns. Uh, uh, So it hasn't been a great field. Most fields that require heavy capital investment, uh, most of the time they they don't turn out very well over time. uh, There are plenty of exceptions to that, but uh, if you find a business that has to keep adding up huge sums of money every year, there always will be a reason why they're doing it. But the net result after 5 or 10 or 20 years usually isn't very good. Charlie, got Area 4?
5: Good afternoon, Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger. My name is Bob Odom from Seattle, Washington. I'd like to say, first of all, how nice it is to come out to Omaha and how I am made to feel comfortable by its people. I hope you both are as enthusiastic about the meeting as you seem to be in years to come. Mr. Munger, by the way, I am looking forward to your book coming out. Uh, My question has to do with Doug Ivester's severance package and what justifies it considering he had a very short tenure as CEO and that he took the uh, reins from some very strong performance from Consueta and to uh, be relieved of his dismal performance by Doug Daft. My brother, still in the bottling and distribution business of Coke, cut this article from Bottler's World Magazine concerning the severance package. He said he also would retire if he were offered this. uh, (laughs) 97.4 million in Stock, three million per year for 2000 to 2002, two million per year 2002 to 2007, 1.4 million per year from 2007 for the rest of his life. Uh, anyway, I don't see how uh, car and cell phone. He gets that. That's a Mercury Grand Marquis and uh, mobile telephones, laptop, computer, and the like. I don't know why you'd need that. Uh, Anyway, I've been wondering how you voted on this, whether you supported it or not, or what uh, degree, considering executive pay at Berkshire hasn't risen, except perhaps for the CFO who last uh, got a raise, I believe, in 1997. You
0: asked, uh, no, CFO's gotten a raise every year, but... uh uh, You asked whether I supported it. Yeah, I can tell you I supported it because with my 35% interest in 8% of Coca-Cola, I I paid almost 3% of it myself personally. I I probably paid more severance pay than any man in the history of the world personally. Uh, (laughs) I was not on the comp committee, but I I will say this. Doug Ivester did all kinds of, of... really wonderful things for the Coca-Cola company over time. He was, it, he, for many, many years when Roberto was running things, Doug and working with Don Keo too, and, you know, I had this firsthand from both of them. I, I wasn't in Atlanta, but, but there was no question that he was a huge, huge asset and conceived and carried out many of the things that other people may have gotten even more credit for. Most of what you describe, not not the little things at the end, but most of what you describe was contractually uh, in place uh, at the time that, that he left. I mean those were deals that were made, restricted stock and all of that that, that really occurred in significant part when Roberto uh, was the chief executive officer and at Roberto's recommendation. Doug's devotion to Coke is knowledge of Coke. I mean, he lived and ate and and breathed coke, but in in my opinion, Doug Daft was the man for the job and and, and a change was made, but it was not because of any lack of attention by Doug Ivester. Uh, It was not because he hadn't done great things as CFO of the company, but uh, I think he was not the right man at at the time Uh, he took over as CEO. He took over, as you know, when Roberto died quite suddenly. and There wasn't any real option in terms of the, he was Roberto's hand-picked successor. Uh, It's almost inconceivable that somebody else would have been chosen at that time. And we made a decision within a couple of years that the company would move faster and better with Doug Daft in charge. And we made a deal uh, in severance, which, uh was about eighty percent or some very high percentage embedded and like I say I paid more of it than anybody else. So it isn't it isn't like it was all academic. Uh and I think considering some other factors which uh, maybe I'll put in a book sometime, uh that entered into it, it was definitely the right decision for the Coca-Cola company. Whether the computer should have been included with the car or anything I I can't I I would not want to defend small item by small item, but I can uh I think the Coca-Cola shareholders uh, uh, are going to be many billions of dollars ahead over time by, by uh, what was done then. And it wasn't easy to do. We'll go to five. Charlie, do you have anything to add on that? You paid a fair amount, too. <laughs> uh,
2: generally speaking, I think it's a mistake for corporate America to create as much hostility as it does which is based on the way it, it compensates principal officers of uh, corporations, it is simply maddening to add a little clause that the corporation will scratch the guy's back for you know, just tiny little bits of of uh, stuff that looks terrible. To me, that is extremely stupid. And uh, I see it where the corporation helps him prepare his tax return for... 10 years after he leaves and so forth. I think that makes a terrible impression on on shareholders generally, and I think corporate America is crazy to do it. They get sold this stuff by these damn consultants. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with Charlie, and what it, it,
4: it is
0: true what Charlie says. We don't have a contract, uh, at least that I can think of, it, at Berkshire. It's perfectly easy to run a company without them. We've got wonderful managers. You know, we've got things that might be called contracts. I mean, we've got deals with them in terms of we tell them what we work out, compensation arrangements and all that. We, I, I, I can't remember a case of anybody that's been with us that ever has called in a lawyer or anything of the sort, you know, or or, the, or we, were, we were even had to reduce things to writing, basically. And it works fine. And it is a little maddening, as Charlie says, to have, have a, a CEO, you know, show up with a lawyer with a twenty page contract. I mean it, it it's become standard operating procedure and once you get once you get a big public company with committees, consultants to the committees, consultants who usually are picked by the by the officers of the company, they, they, they look around at what everybody else is doing and say, well that's the way the other guy does it, so I'll do it. I think you could I think the proxy statements of the last twenty years, what that's induced in the way of behavior by people at at somewhat comparable companies that look at the proxy statements of their competitors and then say to their lawyer, "Well, you know, Joe Blow got this. Why shouldn't I have it?" It just it just escalates and escalates and escalates and it ratchets and I, I, it won't stop. I have never seen a compensation consultant come into a public company and suggest a plan that that net reduces the you know the cost of compensation.
4: Yeah.
0: At uh, and I see all kinds of people leave companies with, who have made tremendous amounts of money and nobody wants to hire them at half the price or a quarter of the price or a tenth of the price. You know, I mean, it, it's not a market system. CEO compensation is not a market system and it's not subject to market tests. And uh, I don't know what you do about that particularly, but I, uh, it doesn't seem to bother shareholders very much. The ones that could change it. Well, I think
2: it bothers them a lot, Warren. It's just they, they feel powerless.
0: Yeah, but the institutional shareholders could change that. I, my guess is that the top 30 institutions probably control uh, what two thirds of the big companies in the country, and and they don't they don't seem to care that much. They actually they spend their time on on what I regard as peripheral issues. Usually, they 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 talk about other things. They get involved in in rituals of corporate governance that frankly don't mean a damn in terms of how the company performs, and they seem to ignore these other issues. But you know, there's, uh, we got enough to do running Berkshire, so we, we, we can't reform the world on that. We, we will run Berkshire in a rational manner. And we have yet to hire a compensation consultant, and we've yet to lose an important manager. Okay, we'll go to number
6: five. Hello. Hi. I am Diane Ryan from Prairie Village, Kansas. This is the fourth year I've attended the stockholder meeting, and I'd like to say every year I feel like I've learned a little bit more. This year, my question is, do you see a deflationary trend in the global economy? And if so, what is your investment advice? Well, Diane, I, uh,
0: I'm no good on the macro questions, and I've proven that by being way too worried about inflation for probably the last 20 years. Fortunately, it hasn't made much difference. Uh, the fact that I've been wrong on that, uh, so I don't really think my judgment is any better than yours at all in terms of assessing what's going to happen to global prices over time. My my opinion would be that the world is not going into any deflationary uh, situation. But you know, I've not I've not earned any uh, any uh, stars for my past economic predictions and the good thing about my economic predictions if I even do make them is that I pay no attention to them myself so uh, I I really uh, and the way we pick our investments is we just don't get into the macro factors I can't recall a time when Charlie and I have looked at a business either buying it in its entirety or buying uh, pieces of it through the stock market I just uh, macro uh, conclusions are just never Never enter into the discussion. I mean, I'll pick up the phone. We've had these two in recent months, and I'll tell Charlie about it. You know, we we talk about a few things, but we don't talk about anything remotely macro. Uh, And and that's really the way it'll stay. You know, I I, I've seen a lot of bank mergers recently, and one of the things they do because they want to cut the costs and and justify a merger, which they're dying to do. I mean, that's the reason. They, they, so they, they cut costs they wouldn't have cut if they, if they weren't dying to do the merger in the first place and get bigger. But they, frequently I know one in particular that I'm thinking of that, you know, they'll cut out the economics department. You know, I always wonder why the hell they had it in the first place, you know, because what what, what do they do? You know, I mean, so the guy comes in and says, I think GDP will be 4.6 this year instead of 4.3. So what? You know, I mean, you're still trying to make every good loan you can make, and you're still trying to take in deposits as she could be trying to cut costs wherever you can. It's got nothing to do with running the business, but, but, you know, it, it's it's fashionable. And every bank had its economist and economics department, and when a big client would come in, they take them to lunch, and it just—it always has struck me as, it's just a lot of nonsense. Uh, you know, so if we ever get an economics department at Berkshire, sell the stock short. And <laughs> <laughs> Number six, please. But, Charlie, I did not no, okay. Uh, He'd rather eat peanut brittle. <laughs> uh,
5: hello, Mr. Buffett. Hi. Mr. Munger. My name is Aaron Wexler, and I'm from Santa Maria, California. Um, I have My question has two parts. The first part is uh, uh, when you and Bill Gates had a television show some time ago, uh, you, were, you were asked about uh, the people who uh, were had different role models. And you said, you said, well, uh, if you, if I know a person's role model, I can pretty well tell what kind of a person he is and what kind of a future he has. Uh, Mr. B- Mr. Buffett, my, my role model is Warren Buffett. Do
0: you think I have a chance? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you're choosing me on the basis you hope to expect to live to a little, uh, advanced age. I, I like to think that that's what I bring to the party. Um, well, it, it, it does pay to have the right models. I mean, I, I was very lucky early very early in life that I had certain heroes, and I've continued to develop a few more of as, as I've gone along. And they've been terrific, and they never let me down. And it takes you through a lot, and I think that, you know, it, it, it just stands to reason that you copy very much uh, the people that you do look up to, and particularly if you do it at an early enough age. so. I think if you can influence the model, the role models of a of a five year old or an eight year old or a ten year old, you know, it, it's going to have a huge impact. And of course, everybody virtually starts out with 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 their initial models being their parents. So they, they are the ones that are going to have that huge effect. Out. them. mean, if that parent turns out to be a great model, I think it's going to be a huge plus for the child. I think that it beats a whole lot of other things in life to to have the right models around. And I have. Like I say, even after I—as i gotten older, I picked up a few more, and uh, it it influences your behavior. I'm convinced of that, and uh, if you—you will want to be a little more or a lot more, depending on your personality, like the person that you admire. And I tell—I tell the uh, students in classes, I tell them, you know, just pick out the person you admire the most in the class and sit down and write the reasons out why you admire them, and then try and figure out why you can't have those same qualities. Because they're not the ability to throw a football 60 yards or run the 110 flat or something like that. They're qualities of personality, character temperament that that are, can be emulated. But you got to start early. It's very tough to change behavior later on. And you can apply the reverse of it following Charlie's theory you can find the people that you don't like and say, what don't I like about these people?" And then you can if, if you know it takes a little strength of character, but you can look inward and say, you know, have I got some of that in me? And uh, it's not—it's not complicated. Ben Graham did it. Ben Franklin did it. And and uh, it's not complicated. Nothing could be more simple than the, uh, to try and figure out what you find admi- uh, admirable, and then decide—you know—that the person you really would like to admire is yourself. And the only way you're going to do it is take on the qualities of other people you admire. Anyway, that's a two-minute answer on 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 something Bill and I did talk a little bit about Charlie. <laughs>
4: Yeah,
2: there is no reason also to look only for living models. Uh, the eminent dead are, the, are, in the nature of things, some of the best models around. And uh, if it's a model is all you want, uh, you're really better off not limiting yourself to the living. Some of the very best models are, have been dead for a long time.
0: <laughs> it, Charlie has probably read more biography than any three people in this room put together. So he, is, he, is, he has put this into practice. And as somebody mentioned early, earlier, uh, Janet Lowe has a biography of Charlie coming out here in, uh, uh later this year. So uh, you can read all the secrets of
7: Charlie's life. But
0: <laughs> okay, number seven.
7: Good afternoon, uh, gentlemen. My name is Gary Rodstrom from uh, here in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, My question is, uh, if uh, Alan Greenspan just decided to retire and that job was offered uh, to either of you, uh, would you take it?
0: Well, I can tell you my answer is no in a hurry. (laughs) (laughs) I think Charlie will give you his answer. (laughs) So I would say no more quickly. You you notice we gave you very unequivocal answers, and of course that, that alone would disqualify us from the job at, at the Fed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think I think it was Alan that said to one senator, he said, "Since you, uh, you know, since you've uh, seemed to have stated my remarks so accurately, you must have misunderstood them." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, and I I don't think you could find a job in public life that uh, wouldn't entice either one of us uh, and the truth is we're having too much fun I mean it, this, this we've got the best job in the world we get to work with people we like and admire and trust every day of the, the year we get to do what we want to do the way we want to do it and uh, they're, they're, we should pay and this is true of some other CEOs too but we should pay to have this job I mean it, it is it is really interesting I've often thought if you could get you know you had a sealed envelope and you got and you had the compensation committee, say what they would pay to have the job filled, but then you have the chief executive, you know, also say what he would do before he would leave, there would be a huge, huge gap. And I mean, it's it, – it, there are all kinds of – I mean, it, it, it's a lot of fun to start with, interesting problems you come up with, interesting things to do, something different every day. I mean, it, you can't – you can't beat the job, and to get paid for it is just the frosting on the cake. And, and I don't see any jobs like that in public life myself. And uh, well, Charlie, if you got anything to add, Charlie. Charlie takes on these public uh, jobs. He runs a hospital and a few things, and he can tell you the wonders of it. Charlie. Oh yeah.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> There's an old saying that he lied like a finance minister on the eve of a devaluation. I never wanted to have a job where lying was a required part of the activity.
5: Mm. Mm.
8: Number eight. Mr. Buffett, Mr. Munger, my name is Norman Rentrop. I'm from Bonn, Germany. I want to thank you very much for so patiently listening and answering and sharing yesterday and today. And I'm a shareholder since 1992, and this is my first meeting. I came here being inspired by Robert Miles' book, 101 Reasons to Own Berkshire Hathaway. And I was very careful listening to you, the reasons how you pick good people, that it's love for the business and not so much love for the money. And I'd like to hear a little bit more on your philosophies, now that Berkshire Hathaway is more and more buying companies, on this, how you make sure that it's true love and how you pick people.
0: It's a terrific question. I don't know exactly how to answer. Maybe Charlie will think of it while I'm stumbling around. But... I really, I think I can do that quite well, but I don't know of any way to give somebody else a set of questions to ask, or you know, uh, I don't know how to tell. I don't know how to tell someone else how to select uh, managers uh, using those criteria. Do they love the business or do they love the money? Uh, it's very, very important. I mean, it's crucial. Uh, because it, well, we see it all the time. I mean, you, you've got people around who love the money, and, and, and uh, you see them in public companies and doing things that you know, we wouldn't want to have associated with us. And on the other hand, if they love the business, and we, it, we ta- you know, I'll tell an owner this. I will say to them, you've built this business lovingly for 50 years, or and, and maybe your parents before you, maybe even your grandparents. One of these businesses we're buying is fourth generation. And the clincher. In fact, I used it with Jack Ringwald back in 1967. I, I said to Jack, who had built it over a long period, of time, do, you, "Do you want to sell this? You know, you want to dispose of this, the most, you know, your creation, your painting, uh, or do you want some 26-year-old trust officer to do it the day after you die?" And the thought of who was going to hand, handle this masterpiece, which he'd created himself, was important to him. And I tell him, you know, if they want to put it in our museum. You know, we will make sure, A, it doesn't get resold, that it gets the proper respect, and that you can keep painting it. You know, we won't come in and tell you to use reds instead of yellows or anything like that. So even though it's a masterpiece now, you can keep, you can keep adding to it. So we like to think that we're the Metropolitan Museum of Businesses and that we can get uh, really outstanding creations uh, to reside in our museum, but it, We've got to deliver the kind of museum to these to these painters of businesses in effect uh, that we would want if we were doing the same sort of thing. To some people, that doesn't mean a damn thing. I mean, all they want to do is auction their business, you know, and and they you know and they probably cheat on their figures a little in the last year or two before they sell it to dress it up, and they do all kinds of things, and they employ some investment banker who pretends that. You know he's getting bids from other people to jack it up some more and all it's you know that's standard procedure for a lot of people we have no interest in buying in with them at any price because we don't want to be on the other side of the table you know and for, for the rest of our lives with somebody's going to do that if somebody loves their business and i love berkshire i mean you, you create something over a period of time it it, it it means something to you i mean you know some people get it out of how they decorate their home or some people get it out of you know all kinds of different things. They're golf game or whatever, but some of us get it out of building a business. And it has to be enormously important what kind of a home it finds. And there comes a time in many situations for estate taxes or because the kids don't get along or whatever the hell it may be, why people need to do something with that business. But they don't want it auctioned off. And we get—we have a good home for that. I think I can tell pretty well what people's motivations are uh, when they come in uh, with the business, and so far we've we've batted pretty well. We've made mistakes. There's no question about that. But but uh, in a sense, I think they've gotten fewer over over the years. And we have our disappointments with people have been very very few. We've been wrong about the economics of the business sometimes, but that's our mistake, not theirs. Uh, we we've, we've seldom been wrong about the people. And I wish I could give you a checklist that you could go down and you could. Say, well, this guy is, loves the money, so he's going to be gone in six months, and this one loves the business, so he's as long as I leave him alone to do his job and appreciate what he does and be fair with him, that he's going to stay around here as long as he can. Uh, uh, Charlie, have you got any thoughts on how you separate these people out? I,
2: I think our culture is very old-fashioned. In other words, I, I think it's... Ben Franklin and Andrew Carnegie and it's very old fashioned and what I think is amazing about Berkshire is how well these very old fashioned ideas still work. Can you imagine Andrew Carnegie calling in a compensation consultant or
4: <laughs>
2: an investment banker to tell him whether he should buy another steel mill or No I, We don't get imitated much. I mean, we're imitating, you know, the behavior of a period that has been gone for a long time, but uh, I, I don't seem. A lot of the businesses we buy uh, are kind of cranky like us and old fashioned. And uh, I no, hope we there's continue there's, it that way.
0: They're sitting out there, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
2: Well, but I, I think the businesses do have standards. C's has standards. Uh, It just, it has its own personality, but it's, but maintaining standards is a huge part of it.
0: Charlie hit on one thing in terms, uh, the idea of asking investment bankers or somebody to evaluate the businesses you're going to buy, I mean, that, that strikes us as idiocy. If you don't know enough about a business to decide whether to buy it yourself, you better forget it. You know, it, uh, it, uh, it is not, it does not make sense. You bring in somebody who's going to get a very large check if you buy it, and and a very small check if you don't, uh, that that displays a faith in human nature that would strain Charlie and me. (laughs) It's a key point which you raise, and and frankly, if I think there's anything we're good at, I think we're pretty good at at, uh, what you're talking about there. It's an important part of capital allocation, because we do not, we are not in a position to manage the businesses ourselves. And... We want management as well as the business, and, and we've gotten it, and we've gotten it in spades from people that, have, that stay on and done a terrific job for us. And uh, uh, it makes life a lot easier, too. But, uh, let's go to number one again.
9: Hello, Warren. Hello, Charlie. My name is Doug Patterson. I'm from here in Omaha. I teach down the road at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And I teach in theater, which is also the greatest job in the world. And I have to say that I enjoy the theater you provide every year. Thanks so much. Thank you. Um, Just sitting here, there are so many questions that come to those of us who've been sitting here for three or four hours. I've got three very disconnected questions.
0: Okay, we'll do them one at a time. Cool.
9: In terms of these tech stocks, you say that you don't understand them. Can you say if you think I can't imagine you not understanding something?
0: Oh, we, we, we understand the product, we yeah. understand what it does for people, we just don't know the economics of it ten years from now. That I mean you can understand all you can understand steel. I mean you can understand home building. But if you look at a home builder uh, and, and try and think where it's gonna be in five or ten years, the economics of it, that's another question. I mean it's not a question of understanding the product they turn out, the means they use to distribute it, all of those sort of things. It's the predictability of the economics of the situation ten years out and that that's our problem.
9: Right. And I'm not I'm not trying to provoke you into doing it. I'm glad you <laughs> haven't, because I probably would have gone into cardiac arrest this last couple of months. Yeah well so would we. <laughs> yeah. So um so your projection is that you are not going to try to make an attempt to understand that. You think it's is it not comprehensible?
0: Is that it? It's not comprehensible Yeah er, every business I look at, I think about its economics. It, it, you know it's built into me, it's built into Charlie. So it isn't like when some if, – if, if I'm with Andy Grove or – actually, I knew Bob Noyce back at Cornell in 1968 and 69 when they were starting Intel. I When he talked to me about starting Intel or anybody talks to me about a business, I think about its economics. I, I – I'll think about the economics of UNO, you know, if, if we talk for three or four minutes. Uh, but – so it, it isn't that we shut off the valve. It's just that we don't – we don't get any place. We, we don't know where, what it'll look like. And it's, you know, there are a lot of things in life that uh, uh, you can, they're just beyond comprehension uh, for many of us, and-
9: so, so you'd say that like
0: nobody really probably can understand this where it'll be in 10 years. Nobody could understand w- We would that. be very skeptical about my, Yeah, I would say that, and incidentally, my friend Bill Gates would say the same thing. And, and, and actually, Bob Noyce would have, Bob died some years ago, but, or Andy Grove. I, they, they would say the same thing. I've taken long walks with Andy, and, and they they would not want to put down on paper their predictions about where 10 companies you would choose in the tech field would be in 10 years in terms of their economics. They would say that's too hard.
9: Cool. A, a second question, again, not related, but I've heard this question several times today, and it comes up every year. I'd like to couch it in sort of a different phrase. Let's say that you stepped outside of this building and were hit by a bus.
0: Yeah, we've got one fellow objects to that here as a shareholder. It, it, it's normally a truck, a truck and, okay. and he happens to be in or, a trucking business, so he... Or, yeah. or give it... Just, give just a, so it isn't a Geico driver, but...
9: Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, given Omaha, it could be a road grader. Yeah, right. Um, uh, what kind, uh, I mean, that would be a, a sudden... I mean, maybe you'd come out of it with a great fastball. Maybe that's it, but you wouldn't have your, your facility at Stocks. Um, what kind of advice would you give people that hold Berkshire Hathaway at a moment such as that? Well, it, it,
0: it, I, I've got the ultimate test on that because my estate at that point would be 99 and three-quarters percent invested in Berkshire, and I feel totally comfortable considering the, the uh, arrangements that have been made and the businesses we own and the managers we have in place in terms of that. But no one will be more affected financially, let alone in other manners, by that truck. Than me, uh, and <laughs>
4: <laughs> so it's
0: a thought that's crossed my mind, and uh, uh, you know, it it's 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 a more important question to me than to anybody else, and I've answered it to my satisfaction. The directors have, have some some of my thoughts on the subject, but the world will go on, the businesses will go on, and I think you'll have terrific management in place. Thank you.
9: I appreciate that. Fine. Mm-hmm. And thank you for taking all
0: three of these. They're so, so disconnected. Okay, thank you. Um, given given your comments about newspapers, may we
9: assume that you're probably not going to buy the Omaha World Herald? I think that's a fair assumption,
0: but uh, that would probably be true regardless of my thoughts about newspapers because they're not going to sell. <laughs> Charlie, have you got anything to add on any of
2: Well, that story about the World Herald is interesting. The truth of the matter is uh, Warren had been offered the Omaha World Herald 20 or 25 years ago, he would have carefully bought it, and uh, and now he doesn't want it, and that isn't because of the economics.
0: That's true. Yeah, I, I I mean, there's no I have not been offered, never will be offered it. It's all the ownership's all set. But what Charlie said is is true. If it were if it were still owned by an individual and they offered it to me, for but economic you, reasons I wouldn't want to buy it, and for other reasons I wouldn't want to buy it.
2: You wouldn't want to buy it now because your life would be less congenial afterward than before. Yeah. There'd be more people after you.
0: There'd be no plus in life to owning the World Herald. Yeah. Done. At all. Yeah. <laughs> that, and as Charlie said, that's probably not the way we would have thought 30 years ago. I know. Not would, at all. No. I think we're right now. Number two. <laughs>
10: uh, hi. Howard Winston uh, from Chicago, Illinois. I wanted to thank uh, Charlie and you for your hospitality. Uh, My question is, um, Berkshire has benefited enormously over the years from the low cost of its float. Do you think the Internet will make the insurance business more competitive and therefore raise the cost of your float?
0: Well, that's a good question. I would say that the Internet, from what I see now, is unlikely to increase the cost of Berkshire's float. It will have different effects on different aspects of our insurance business. And it will change the insurance industry in some ways, and I can't tell you exactly what. But you know that any system of distribution is going to be affected by something that changes the economics of distribution as much as the the Internet does. So there's no question it will have an impact. I think in the end, the competitive advantages we have among our group of insurance companies, net will not be hurt by the Internet. But I could be wrong on that, and therefore I don't think that our cost of float will be changed much. Uh, I don't think industry economics in in aggregate for insurance companies are going to be changed very much. The the economics haven't been that good. I think they'll be about, you know, in in that same range. And I don't think our competitive advantage will be – will be uh, cut, so therefore I think our cost of float in the future is going to be higher than it has been in the past, but that's for reasons other than the internet. I still think we'll have an attractive cost of funds over time on float. Uh, It's a good business for us. I don't think it's necessarily a good business for the average company. Charlie?
2: Well, there's a marvelous issue buried in your question. Will the internet, by making competition so much more efficient, make business generally harder for American corporations, meaning more competitive,
0: lower returns on capital? And my guess would be yes. Yeah, my guess would be yes, too. I would say that on balance, for society, the internet is a wonderful thing, and for capitalists, it's probably a net negative.
2: So all of you can be happy that the progress of the species will affect your economic futures for the (laughs) worse.
0: A sacrifice at which our ages were willing to do, but we wouldn't be at (laughs) your age. That, that, incidentally, I mean, that there, there's plenty to think about there. The, the Internet, I mean, if you analyze it, you have to think it's much more likely that it will reduce the profitability of American business and improve it. It will improve the efficiency of American business, but all kinds of things improve the efficiency of American business without making it more profitable. And I think that the Internet is likely to fall into that category. So far, it's improved the monetized value of American business, but that, that will eventually follow the underlying economics of what the Internet does. And I, I think it's, it's, it's way more likely to make American business in aggregate worth less than, than uh, compared to what it would have been otherwise.
2: By the way, that's perfectly obvious and very little understood.
0: So there. (laughs) Okay. Number three.
11: Yes. Good afternoon. Uh, My name is Tom Gaynor from Richmond, Virginia. And in the current environment, it seems that the attacks on the moats of wonderful businesses are coming from inside the castle in the form of option-based compensation just as much as from outside competitors. One of your role models, Ben Franklin, said, even a small hole can sink a great ship. It seems like the holes are getting bigger. Can you discuss what, if any, forces may cause this to change? Is it a problem that will get worse or get better? And my second is specifically in your role as directors of companies like Coke and Gillette, are you seeking to change these practices, and what kinds of success do you expect there? Do they let you on the comp committee? And three, if these compensation practices are irrational, does Berkshire benefit from this irrationality? Thank you.
0: Well, to carry the castle analogy uh, further, we not only look for a great economic castle, but we look for a, a great knight in charge of that castle, because that's important. He's the one that throws the crocodiles into the moat and widens the moat over time. And of course, the question is, is you know, how much does the knight get of the castle for doing that? And uh, I think, generally speaking, at Berkshire, you get a very fair deal in terms of the amount that we've got a lot of castles around, and 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 we try to pay people fairly. But but I don't think that the the division of is unfair between the the owners of the castle and 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 the knights that are around there protecting the moat. The it's hard for me to imagine how the how the compensation practices uh, uh, the question of how much the knight gets of the castle uh... how that changes in favor of the owners of the castle over time there the ratcheting effect is just unbelievable no one no compensation committee in america will have a uh, be listening to a consultant who walks in and says i think you're Management is, you know, should have an arrangement that ends up in them being in the lower half. You know, and if no one wants to be in the lower half, believe me, the median is going to move up. I mean, there is no way around that. I mean, these people meet yearly or more often, and they sit there with a proxy statement of every other company in their business, you know, and they pick out the ones that that, uh, have the biggest numbers in them, and they say, well, gee, we need a management at least as good as this, and how are we going to attract people and all this other stuff. And uh, it can only go, it, it'll only ratchet upward. And uh, I think that's a fact of life, and I think that it's, um, it's uh, important for shareholders to understand that. I've been on the board of 19 companies, not counting any Berkshire subsidiaries or anything like that. At, uh, I was on the last comp committee I was on was at Solomon. And uh, I was chairman of the comp committee, I think. I may be wrong on that. Uh, There were three of us, and the other two guys were terrific guys. And the earnings came in one year, $100 million or so. I think it was 1990, below the previous year. And comp was up a fair amount. And uh, I'd find there'd been some earlier issues involved. So I I just said I couldn't swallow it anymore. And uh, I voted against it. I can't remember whether I was chairman or not, but in any event, it was two to one against me. And I think it would have been two to one against me if I'd been chairman. And the other two fellows were perfectly rational. So how do we keep these people? And you know, how can we repudiate our management? All the sort of things you get. I, so as a practical, I've, I've got one friend, terribly well-regarded businessman, and he's been—they don't throw you off the comp committee. They just don't renominate you. And he's been—he's been bounced from two of them simply by raising some questions that. About things you would find outrageous. Um, I'm not on the comp committee. I've, I've been on only one comp committee, and uh, they saw what I did, so that was the end of it. Uh, people say, you know, oh, we love your ideas, and you know, you think creatively. <laughs> we don't want to hear about your thoughts on compensation, uh, and that you know, it's understandable, you know. Uh, and every and you run into some terrific cases of people. I mean, the fellow runs fast and all, for example. I mean, they just you know outstanding and uh there, there are a number of cases where people behave very well but most of them i think some i don't think it's money so much uh, sometimes i just think it's ego they just can't stand to see some guy that they think is batting 280 and they're batting 300 and he's getting paid more money and, and you know and, and that process is endless uh and that, I, you know that's understandable it's like who gets top billing in a movie or something of the sort uh, uh, people care about the—you know, where their name is compared to somebody else's. And, and uh, uh, their name in this case is compensation. Uh, and it—I it, 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 I doubt if it reverses itself. Charlie?
2: No, I think we can confidently expect that the situation will get worse. And I think we can confidently expect that that is bad for Berkshire Hathaway to the extent that it's a passive shareholder in, in, in big corporations. There is one place where we get an advantage. Our own culture and attitude being so different. It does attract some of these people that own wonderful businesses. I mean, we literally on occasion find people for whom we're the only acceptable buyer. They don't like this culture of other big corporations any better than you do and and
0: that does give us an advantage yeah you asked us a question also about the uh, how active we might be in, in, in saying these we're we're not going to ever sit here and tell you what we say in other boardrooms because it, it it would it would reduce any effectiveness we might have and we probably don't have that much effectiveness anyway but uh you know, you can only belt so many times at the dinner table and get invited back. Uh, and and
10: uh,
0: <laughs> we uh, we've probably done enough of our share of that. And and you uh, we try to run Berkshire in a way that we find admirable, and we try to spell out our reasoning on it and everything else. And we hope that maybe somebody latches onto that as as a model someplace. But going around condemning people by name does not work. And so we, we you know, we, 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 we hate the sin and love the sinner and all that sort of thing. And uh, uh, it doesn't have much effect. <laughs> Number four.
12: Good, uh, good afternoon, Warren and Charlie. My name is Eris. I'm from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. And my first time in Nebraska, in, uh, in Omaha, first time hearing you guys live, and uh, there's a big ice cream man behind you. Mm. We go. <laughs> there
0: we go. And you think there are no management perks at Berkshire.
12: Yeah. Oh,
4: boy.
0: <laughs> All
12: right, let's get out of the okay. business. <laughs> okay. We can hey, g- is my wait. question is in reference to your article in Fortune Magazine last November, where you talked about corporate earnings and what the market...
0: Are you guys listening? Or? I'm listening. <laughs> um,
4: <laughs>
0: we We can chew gum and listen at the same time. All right. All right. All right. As I was saying...
12: But if we had You ma- in your article, unfortunately, uh, about corporate earnings and what the market is paying for them. I'm painting a, a pretty gloomy uh, picture for equities and, and, and market levels going forward. Now, as you may know, there exists a very strong trend in demographics. Uh, we see in Canada and the United States the aging of the population, and more importantly, the bulk of this population reaching their peak savings years all at the same time. You're getting a little rude,
0: but go ahead. <laughs> I can't believe this. want wa-
12: actually called me rude. <laughs>
0: I wanted to prove to you I was listening. Go ahead. Anyways, okay.
12: So there's a, there's a major I mean, retirement crisis as a majority of, of Canadians and Americans between the ages of, especially between 22 and 55, are worried that they won't have enough money to fund their retirement or let alone last. So for this reason, I mean, this population is expected to invest in equities as opposed to fixed income instruments to get the necessary long-term uh, rates of return to fund their, their nest egg uh, for retirement, and therefore, many are calling for massive amounts of money to flow into the markets over the next 5, 10, 15 years through stocks and mutual funds and consequently fueling market prices and mar- market uh, levels, uh, many predicting the biggest growth ever in the, in the stock markets. So what is your opinion on this potential trend separately or in conjunction with what you said in that article
0: uh, in Fortune? Thanks very much. Well, Good. Uh, to be, and I'm not being rude here, but we don't think it means a thing, frankly. Uh, the uh, the the savings rate, the private savings rate is, you know, is is not high now. It doesn't need to be high. What really determines how the people who are either aged or very young, because either way, people who are in their non-productive years depends in aggregate on aggregate production of goods and services and then the the division between those who are in their productive years and in their non-productive years. And that's what... Social Security arguments about and everything. The biggest single thing working for people in their non-productive years on both ends, young and old, is the fact that the pie keeps growing. And, and that makes it easier to attack the problems of the non-productive. Uh, and when I say non-productive, there's obviously no uh, nothing derogatory about that term. It just, it, it just relates to who's in the in employable age and who isn't. And our society is going to do extremely well in terms of being able to take care of the people who are non-productive years. If there There is a shift, obviously, as people live longer, and of course, there should be a shift perhaps in defining—I think there should be—in defining what's productive, because 65 was decided back in the 30s, and I think that's changed. But the fact that the pie keeps growing is what makes it—it it makes the, 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 the problem easy. And—and and, uh, uh, not easy, but it—but it'll be easier. 30 or 40 years from now, in my view, you know, than it was 30 or 40 years ago, because there'll be so much more in the way of goods and services produced per capita that the productive can take care of the nonproductive uh, or the aged uh, in a way that will be easier for them to sustain than it was in the past. When it's low amounts of output that strain society, I mean, when you get very small amounts of output or huge disparities in the division of that, uh, that you put real strains on, on a society. But a society that whose, whose output is growing 3% a year and whose population is growing 1% a year uh, is going to have way less in the way of strains uh, than existed 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago. Uh, the uh, But, you know, we, we will need no big boom in savings or anything of the sort. The present savings rate will do... just do fine for the world Uh, in in the united states i mean i'm not speaking to the i shouldn't speak to the whole world on that
2: charlie well generally you can say that stocks are valued in two different ways one they're valued much the way wheat is valued in terms of its perceived practical utility to the user of the wheat And there's a second way that stocks are valued, which is the way Rembrandt's are valued. And to some extent, Rembrandt's are valued high because in the past they've gone up in price. And once you get a lot of Rembrandt element into the stock market, and you fuel the stock market with massive retirement uh, system purchases, you can get stocks selling at very high prices by past historical standards, and that can go on for a long, long time. That's what makes life so interesting. It isn't at all clear how it's going to work out. It isn't even clear what the level of interest rates is going to be. And nobody in this room ever expects to see 3% interest rates continue for a long time again, but that could happen. That would have an enormous effect on the price of, of equities. Uh, you live in a world where you can't really
0: predict these macroeconomic changes.
4: Oh, you can argue
0: that increases in savings will drive down the returns on capital. The more capital is around, that the lower the returns will be on capital. But I don't think—I don't think you'll—I don't think it will help you make any decisions about businesses you know, over your lifetime, by actually by thinking about matters like that. I mean, we're a little biased on that, but you'll find all kinds of guys that will tell you. I mean, that's what books are written about, because everybody likes predictions in books. So you in, get all—go
2: ahead, In so. addressing this question, you can see that we have acted much as one of my old Harvard law professors acted. He used to say, let me know what your problem is, and I'll try and make it more difficult for you. <laughs>
0: Area 5, please. Um,
10: My name is Eric Tweedy from uh, Shavertown, Pennsylvania. Uh, Thanks again for uh, another great meeting. Um, uh, During last year's meeting, my wife picked up a a copy of a a book called Buffetology at uh, one of the shops around town. Uh, That uh, is written by uh, Mr. Buffett's uh, former daughter-in-law. A very uh, well-written book, very interesting, and it... uh, attempts to outline the the Warren Buffett approach to investing. Uh, My question is, I don't know if either you gentlemen are familiar with the content or have read it, and if so, if you could comment uh, on uh, if you think it is a a good outline of uh, that type of investing. Um, My second question related to that, um, uh, I wonder if if, uh, Mr. Buffett could comment on why you bought the original textile mill in Massachusetts. And if that represented an earlier phase when you were more of a, a strictly Graham-style value investor versus your current investment style,
0: probably the best um, I would I would say that the, the the most representative book on my views is the one that Larry Cunningham has put together because he essentially is taken my words and rearranged them in a more... or oh, he's taken them from a number of years and and what what he what he is put together there best represents my views. That, um, uh, and we've got 20 years of annual reports or so or more on the internet, plus articles in Fortune, all kinds of things, so uh, it's probably uh, uh, a bias I have, but I would—I like to think that I laid out those views as uh, better than somebody who's rewriting them, but that—I'll let you make that decision. Uh, uh, but I, 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 I do think Larry's done a very good job of uh, of taking a number of those reports and and rearranging them by topic uh, uh, in a way that makes it a lot easier to read than trying to go through year after year. And uh, actually, you'll have this book about Charlie pretty soon to read too. But we've, we've said what we've said in these meetings, we've said in the annual reports. we've said exactly what we do. And some of the books I would say, Try to take that, and because people are looking for mechanistic things or formulas or whatever it may be, they they try to hold. They may try to hold out that there's a some secret beyond that, but I I, I don't think there there probably is. And Charlie, you the,
2: you've read the books. Well, <laughs> oh, I skimmed uh, <laughs> that book. <laughs> the, uh, I think what we have done all these years is it wasn't all that hard to do and it, it's not all that hard to explain. All that said and done, uh, I think a lot of people just don't get it.
4: <laughs>
2: As Samuel Johnson said famously, I can give you an argument but I can't give you an understanding.
0: Mm. What was the second part again?
10: Uh, I just uh, asked you uh, if you could maybe comment on uh, why you bought the original Berkshire textile home. that's why I
0: didn't remember. <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh, if I could say it one was, of the
10: things, someone tapped me on the shoulder and asked me for, for you not to forget to give the current year's recommended books. <laughs> it's
0: it's oh, I got to recommend the book on Charlie. The uh, But I'll let Charlie recommend one too. The original purchase of Berkshire was a was a terrible mistake, uh, and my mistake. Uh, no one uh, no one pushed me into it. It was uh, I bought it because it was what we used to call, or uh, the cigar. It was a cigar butt approach to investing, where we would look around for something with a free puff left in it. You know, it was soggy and kind of disgusting and everything, but it was free. And Berkshire was selling below working capital. Had a history of repurchasing shares periodically on tender offers, and it was selling. It first purchase was I think at seven and a half dollars a share. In fact, I've got the I've got the broker's ticket up in the office, two thousand shares, and uh, they. It looked to me like they were going to have a tender offer periodically, and there would probably be at some figure closer to working working capital, which might have been eleven or twelve dollars a share, some some such number, and we would sell on the tender. And that was uh, we had other securities we owned that way, and we bought some that way. And then actually, I met um, Seabury Stanton one time who was running berkshire and and uh, he told me and made me an insider, so I couldn't do anything, but he, he he said he was thinking of having a tender, and he was wondering what price we'd tender at and I as I remember, I, I may be wrong on this, I could look back on it, but I think I said 11 and three-eighths, and, he's, and, he, and he said again to me, well, if we have a tender 11 and three-eighths, will you tender? And I said, yes, I will. And, uh, uh, and then I was frozen out, obviously, of doing anything in the stock for a little while, but then he came along with the tender offer, and I, as I remember, I opened the envelope and it was 11 and a quarter. I may be wrong. It was maybe been an 11 and a half, 11 and three-eighths, but it was an eighth below what, what he had said to me and what I had agreed to. So I found that kind of irritating, and uh, I didn't tender, and then I bought a lot of stock. And I bought uh, Kim Chase, who's a director. His, his father uh, 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 had some members of the family, not his direct family, but, but a related family that wanted to sell a block. And we bought several blocks, and before long we controlled the company. Uh, so uh, at an eighth of a point difference, we wouldn't have bought it uh... the company if they'd actually tendered at that price we had a somewhat similar thing happen with blue chip actually later on too now it would have been we would have been much better off if we hadn't bought it because then things like national indemnity and all of that instead of buying it into a public company with a great many other shareholders we would have bought it privately in the partnership and our partners would have had a greater interest so berkshire was exactly the wrong vehicle to use for buying a bunch of wonderful companies over time but I sort of stumbled into it, and we kept moving along. And when I disbanded the partnership, I distributed out the Berkshire because it seemed like the easiest and best thing to do. And I followed through, and, and I enjoyed it enormously. I'm glad it all worked out this way. It did not work out the best way economically, in all probability. Um, it was it was a uh, it was uh, the wrong base to use to build uh, an enterprise around. But maybe in a way that's made it more fun. Charlie, do you have any? Uh, bad on that? You can tell them about the blue chip story. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I have one such story is enough. <laughs> but it is interesting that uh, a wrong decision has been made to work out so well. Uh, we've done a lot of that, scrambled out of wrong decisions. I'd argue that's a big part of having a reasonable record in life. You can't avoid the wrong decisions, but if you recognize them promptly and do something about them, uh, you uh, you can frequently turn the lemon into lemonade, which is what happened here. Warren uh, twisted a lot of capital out of the uh, textile business and invested it wisely, and that's why we're
0: all here. But Berkshire comes from three companies that came together, Diversified Retailing, Blue Chip Stamps, and Berkshire—those uh, were the three base companies. And Diversified started when we bought a company called Hoshul Cone in, in, in Baltimore in 1966, a department store. And that company disappeared over time. Fortunately, in 19—I think '70—we sold it to Supermarkets General. Blue Chip—we've told you about the record of that. So we started out with three disasters and put them all together. <laughs> <laughs> and it's worked out pretty well but it it, it 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 was a mistake to be working from that kind of a base don't don't follow our example in that respect start out with a good business and then keep adding on good businesses
2: but, number, the, but yeah. the example of, of quickly identifying the mistakes and taking action there are example is a good one
0: yeah okay number six
6: Good afternoon, Mr. Buffett, Mr. Younger. Kathleen Lane from New York. I have a question out of left field for you. You say you like to be entertained? This question will entertain you. It's also a serious question. I know you don't like to speculate about the future. You won't do so. I appreciate that. But some people do. For example, Edgar Cayce was one. He didn't pick stocks or investments, but if he had, he would have probably gone to that farmland that you were talking about earlier this morning because he had a dream that in the year 2158, Omaha would be located on the west coast of the United States. And you know how beachfront property goes, so it would be a good bet.
0: It won't be good for our super catastrophe business if that happens.
6: (laughs) (laughs) As you both said earlier, we're living in an extraordinary time financially especially, you can't help it but hear disaster scenarios concerning the impending collapse of worldwide financial markets, about major physical changes in the world as we know it, about a future when the world's resources will be better measured by their prospects for ensuring our basic survival than their value as speculative commodities. That's where that farmland would come in again. Nobody does better what you two do. But even if your investment acumen wasn't what it is, I would invest with you because you're honest. In short, I came here to ask you, what would you tell a single mother to exchange her Berkshire sharehold for gold coins? When, under what circumstances?
0: Well, I can't imagine ever exchanging any of my shares for gold coins. Uh, but I you know, I, I I would rather trust in the intrinsic value of a bunch of really fine businesses run by good managers selling products that people like to buy and have liked to buy for a long time, and them exchanging their future uh, efforts, the, the money that comes from their wages for C's candy or Coca-Cola or whatever, than take some piece of metal that People dig out of the ground in South Africa and then put back in the ground at Fort Knox. You know, after transporting it and insuring it and everything, I, I've never been able to get it real excited about gold. Now, my dad was a huge enthusiast for a gold standard, so I mean, I grew up in a family where gold was revered, if not possessed, and I would, I, it, it, uh, I, I gave it its full chance, but I just, have, I've never understood what the intrinsic value of of, of gold is. And, and uh, um, you know, we'll sell you some at Borsheim's but I would never exchange. The idea of exchanging a producing asset for a non-producing asset uh, would be pretty, pretty foreign to me. Uh, and I would say this, in terms of the, of predictions, and I, I know the spirit in which you asked the question, but in ter- there's just, there's a market out there all the time. Uh, and and. People love to hear predictions. I mean, if, if I said I was going to offer a bunch of predictions today, I mean, we, w- we would have a million people here. I mean, they're, they're, they're dying to have predictions, and speeches at Rotary clubs or trade associations or whatever, that's they, – they they just plain love it. And that's what a whole industry is built upon, you know, the, the people coming out of Washington that, that talk about political predictions and the – I don't read those in the paper at all, because it, it's, it's just – it's it's space fillers, uh, basically. and. Uh, uh, you mentioned Edgar Casey, Ben Graham uh, knew Edgar Casey pretty well. But I, I just have never seen any utility to any of that at all. There will be some huge surprises in the world. Uh, there's no question about that. But I don't, I don't think that betting on any specific one is, is a very smart policy. In fact, our, we usually bet against them in terms of super catastrophes. We know there will be a 7.0 or greater in California in the next 50 years. We don't know where it'll be or when it'll be or anything like that. We're willing to pay out a lot of money if it happens tomorrow. And because people do worry about catastrophes, and in this case, it's perfectly proper with, with, with insured values, but it, it just isn't any way, in, in our view, to get through economic life. Charlie?
2: Well, I suppose the one time when a single mother might want to on gold compared to anything else as if she faced conditions like a Jew in Vienna in 1939 or I mean there are conditions you can imagine where some form of transportable wealth would be uh, useful compared to to anything else but absent those extreme conditions uh, I think it's for the birds now silver
4: <laughs>
0: it's hard to think of anything other than fleeing the country. And, yeah, which, right. and, it, um, right. and Charlie and I don't give a lot of thought to fleeing the country. Although I must say that the one thing I really find reprehensible is the people that make a lot of money in this country and then and then and then leave to you know to. Uh, get another other tax jurisdictions or something like this. I really, uh, I don't, I, I, but I'm a little crazy. I don't mind paying taxes. <laughs> Let's go to seven. There are plenty of reasons, other perfectly valid reasons. I mean, the people may want to live someplace else, but the, the ones who carefully arrange it so that they they, uh, they, they actually live here as much as they can. I think one of them wanted to be appointed, he wanted to go to some very small entity where there was no tax. And then he wanted to be appointed an ambassador to the United States so that he could enjoy living here but enjoy the taxes or something else. And, you know, that is not my role model. Yep.
13: Hello, Warren. Uh, hi, Charlie. Mm. Uh, two questions. First, um, was anybody dumb enough to uh, sell you Berkshire at less than 45000 a share?
0: We did not repurchase any shares.
13: Uh, my second question concerns uh, float. The uh, Float has been low cost almost uh, most years most for year. virtue, and probably uh, zero cost in many years, except last year, possibly. Uh, when you think about float in terms of intrinsic value, do you have an idea in mind when you... Uh, when you add new float for how much it will increase the intrinsic value of Berkshire
0: well we add that, that's a good question but we we consciously add float sometimes at a given cost and then we other times add float at no cost so we we have different layers of float if you will that we've entered into we've we've entered in some transactions in the last month or two where we will take on some float, which will not have zero cost, but it's acceptable to us, and we couldn't get it at zero cost, although we're also creating float, which I think will be close to zero cost or better. So we, we would be willing to take on float. Obviously, it costs only modestly below the treasury rate if that was the only way we could get that float, and it didn't impede our ability to get other float, you know, at zero cost or something. We don't want to we don't want to raise the cost overall by a single transaction that would have an effect on other transactions. But float if you look at our historical record and our future record can't be as good, but it's not it's the cost of float and it's the amount of growth of float. I mean, if you told me I could add 50 billion dollars of float and have a 3% cost to that, you know, I would take that any day over adding 10 billion at zero cost. So there, there's a, there are a lot of different ways in the insurance business that we can and will think about developing float, and usually one doesn't preclude another. Occasionally one bumps into another, but usually one doesn't preclude another. And believe me, we spend a lot of time thinking about that, and we'll continue to as long as we run Berkshire. It's, it's a big part of our strategy. Charlie?
2: Well, I've been amazed how well we've done with the... Float, and I've been watching it from the inside for a long, long time. Uh, it is a very wonderful thing to generate millions and millions and then billions and billions of dollars of float at a cost way below the the Treasury rate. I mean, there are people who would kill for such opportunities.
0: Yeah, and of course that makes it competitive. I mean, yeah. we do, we, we, there are plenty of other people that are thinking about it. In a similar vein and and probably observe what we do and all of that so it like everything else in capitalism it's competitive we think we've got an edge in in several very important respects and we think that edge is sustainable for quite a far as we can see and we intend to push it as hard as we can um and then we'll see where it leads I, i would have had no idea 10 or 20 years ago that we would have the present situation but we do find, if you just show up every day, you know, like Woody Allen said, and you, and you answer the phone and read the paper, every now and then you see something that makes sense to do. And and we do find them occasionally. The hard part is finding them where they are material in relative to our present size. I mean, if we were running a very small business, we would find plenty of things uh, that would make good sense we find a few things that make good sense now relative to our size and and there's really no answer for that except to shrink dramatically which is not a action we're contemplating number eight Uh, james pan
12: from uh, new york city i really have a question on wesco which is your 80 percent held subsidiary just a couple questions couple questions dealing with that first question is last time i checked that was trading below intrinsic value And given that most of Wesco's assets are tied up in Freddie Mac, and Freddie Mac will arguably grow intrinsic value in the low teens for the next couple of years, how are you guys going to manage the, I guess, how would you manage the gap between the intrinsic value and what the current price and what intrinsic value will be two or three years from now? And also, is there a a succession plan at Wesco or some kind of roll-up
0: plan at Wesco eventually? Charlie is the boss at Wesco, so
2: yes yeah, so, uh, we have paid almost no attention to the the price of of wesco stock uh so the the chance to make any meaningful gain for the wesco shareholders by buying in a few shares of wesco stock is, is is it's so tiny that we don't really bother thinking about it very much the uh as to succession, uh, we are gradually making me so useless that I won't be missed.
0: <laughs> yeah, and incidentally, you you talked about Wesco being significantly undervalued compared to intrinsic value. I'm not sure that's the case, Charlie. You're more of an expert on it than I am.
2: Well, it, it,
0: there's certainly no huge gap.
2: Mm. and. Uh, We don't spend a lot of time thinking about things that will make practically
10: no money. (laughs) Number one. Hi, my name is Jason Tank from Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, Before I ask my question, I want to know if it's true that you guys are going to be here tomorrow at 930 to answer more questions. (laughs) Um, My question, I just recently read the book The Quest for Value by, I think think the author was Bennett Stewart from Stern Stewart Consulting Firm. And I wanna talk to you a bit about, just ask you about different uh, valuation methodologies and EVA in particular and how that may or may not be more valid than let's say other benchmarks of value like PE or price to book or price to sales. Is that something closer? I noticed that the language that was used in this book was real similar to the type of language you guys use in your writings. Um, So I'd like you to talk a little bit about EVA if you could.
0: Charlie, why don't you take EVA? (laughs)
2: I think there's an awful lot of twaddle and bullshit.
0: <laughs> I knew that's what he was going to say, that's why I was. <laughs> And I thought it deserved it, so I, <laughs> and I didn't want to say it myself. <clears throat> In ABA, uh
2: we keep stating over and over again that the game is to turn the retained dollars into something more than dollars and uh and eba tends to uh incorporate cost of capital ideas that just make no sense at all I, I they make it sound very fashionable and god knows it's correct that a corporation that earns a huge return on capital and keeps retaining it for a long time has a great record in terms of eba but uh But the 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 mental system as a whole uh, does not work. It's 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 like medieval theology.
0: I like that second term better than the earlier one. (laughs) Number two.
14: (laughs) Good afternoon. My, um, excuse me, my name is Stuart Hartman from Sioux City, Iowa. First, I'd like to thank you both for uh, allowing a couple of Berkshire employees to migrate north to Sioux City. I work with Corey Wren and Mark Sisley, and they're both great guys. You did a terrific job training them. Mr. Buffett, you've known Bill Gates for several years and probably spent more time with him than any of us in this room. Would you feel- think that,
0: that isn't the case if Jeff Rakes is here. I don't know. Is Jeff here? No. Anyway, go ahead. But we, we we did have a local fellow who comes uh, from 30 miles from here, Jeff Rakes, who's a, a key Microsoft employee, and I, I, I think he's in town this weekend. Sure. I thought he was at the meeting. But.
14: I didn't mean to make the broad generalization <laughs> yeah, to be know. argumentative.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just I just didn't want to think, Jeff, I was trying to bustle him out. <laughs> sure, sure.
14: That being said, I guess um, here's the way I'll rephrase this. Would you feel comfortable sharing with us how your relationship began, how it evolved with Mr. Gates. And with regard to his spirit and competitive nature, how vigorous do you expect him to defend his company's position against the government and state's current antitrust suit? And then for both of you, Mr. Munger included, what, in your opinion, are the odds that the government and the states will prevail and split his company into pieces? And then since Mr. Munger mentioned, I guess I'd Asked, could we have an update on the company's silver position and its future as an investment as well? Thank you for opening that door. <laughs> okay,
0: well, he can close them too. Uh, yeah, I really don't feel comfortable speaking for Bill at all in terms of what he's going to do. In fact, I think they've been out quite quite outspoken, he and Steve Vollmer both, about what, what Microsoft will do. So I don't want to try and rephrase that or modify it or do anything else because they you know, they know what they're saying when they say it, and, and I would take them at their word, and and I really shouldn't be adding anything to it. I met Bill because uh, a very good friend of mine, Meg Greenfield, uh, uh, was the editorial page editor at The Post. She called me one time ten or more years ago, and, and she said, Warren, she she loved the state of Washington and the grown-up out there, so she said, can I afford to buy uh, a second home. She was living in Washington, D.C. now, and so she says, can I afford to buy a second home in in Washington? And I said, and she said, I'll send you all my financial information. I said, Meg, you don't need to. Anybody that asks me whether they can afford something can afford it. It's the people that don't ask me. They never can afford it. So I said, just go do it. And uh, it'll make you happy. And and uh, so she did. And and then a year or two later, she wanted to have me come out and see what she'd what she'd done with my mild encouragement. And uh, so I went out there and visited. It was the July 4th weekend in 1991. And uh, they had this parade on this island and everything she wanted me to see. And she had a few other people out too. And then she was a friend of of, uh, Bill's parents. And so uh, we went down there to the Hood Canal to visit them when I was back there to meet the parents. And I think Bill didn't want to come, but Kay Graham was coming in. He wanted to meet her. He didn't want to meet me. And so he came in, and then we hit it off immediately. We had a great time. And I mean, he had this chimpanzee to whom he was going to try and explain this technical stuff, but it was a—I was kind of an interesting chimpanzee to him. So we—and he was—he's a terrific teacher. So uh, we spent a number of hours, and, and, and we just plain hit it off, and, and uh, I found it very interesting what he had to say. and, and uh, uh, we've had a good time, good time ever since. And uh, we play bridge together and golf together, so I can tell you that he's quite competitive in those games. But I uh, I can't tell you anything about about Microsoft or anything. I, I, I don't know that much about it. It wouldn't be right if I didn't know anything uh, personal to be talking about it. Charlie, you know Bill.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I don't want to speak for you know, anybody else either. I happen to be quite sympathetic to the Microsoft side of the uh, pending antitrust case, but... <clears throat> and regarding silver, all I can say is, uh, so far it's been a dull ride.
0: <laughs> I would say this about the Microsoft case, that, it, uh, and I've expressed this to a couple of news organizations who asked the question earlier, 20 years ago, this country really had sort of an inferiority complex about its place in the world economic order, and, and we talked about having a country of hamburger flippers, and, and we thought we were going to lose our steel industry and our auto industry, and we really didn't quite see how America fit into the into the world where it looked like uh, you know the Japanese and the Germans to some extent, and all those were were, were uh, eating our lunch. So, and that. There are many of you who are too young to remember that, but there are many of you in this room who will remember that. And, and we, we were very depressed about our economic situation in this country. And then this, whatever you want to call it, information age or whatever came along, uh, fueled by te- technology, and we've just swept the world aside. I mean, it, 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 uh, uh, we are so far number one that it's difficult to think who's, who's number two. So here we have, and, and it's changed, in some way it's contributed to a change, I should say, in, in, in the national mood and, 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 and it's whether, what, what part of our prosperity is accounted for by it, no one knows, but I think everybody in the room would agree that it's significant. And that age is going to get, and that development is going to get more and more important in the years to come. It's it's going to be fueling much of what happens in the world and for this country to be the world leader and like I say you can't even see who's in second place and moving faster even to increase that lead uh, with all the benefits that brings, you know, I think that I think we've got something working very well that that probably doesn't make a lot of sense to to tinker with too much. So I, I would I would not I would not want to go in with a meat axe uh, into something that is that is uh, pulling this country along, in my view, in a in a, in a huge way. And uh, uh, I just I don't I don't like to tinker with success. And it's an important success. It's really an important success. Charlie and I may not understand how to play that in terms of of buying the companies uh, that are going to do well 10 or 15 years from now, but we know some companies will do well, and we certainly know it will have a huge benefit to society, even if it makes business less profitable, but makes the society more efficient. I mean, that is a huge edge to have. I would love to have the most efficient industry in the world in this, in this country, even though it might pull down returns on capital against the less efficient system. So we, uh, I think neither one of us would be inclined to go in there and, and, and mess around with something that's working. Uh, not, I think the.
2: If you look at the big picture in patriotic terms, having lost totally in radios, stereos, television sets, etc., and in many other places, and having lost position in other major industries to the Japanese and others. We finally get huge leadership in a new and wonderful field, software, that's needed all over the earth. And somebody who's drawing a salary from the United States government gets the bright idea. That it should dramatically weaken the one place where we're winning big. <laughs>
4: yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: And he actually, he actually goes home at night and is proud of himself. Okay, number three.
9: Good afternoon, Uh, Joe Levinson from New York. Um, You mentioned in the 19, in this year's annual report, that the operating environment uh, that Geico is facing, especially with regard to pricing, is going to get even tougher this year. I'm wondering if, if this tough environment that Geico has been facing over the last few years, is it something cyclical? or is there something more structural going on here that we should be concerned about?
0: Well, actually, what has happened is that it's been unduly benign the last few years. So th- I would re- regard this as much more a return to normalcy, what's happening. The profits in, in auto insurance industry-wide have been far higher than I think are sustainable and uh, higher than I would have predicted five years ago would have occurred. So. so the industry got very, very lucky for a while. That wasn't necessarily good for us, incidentally. We made more money than we would have otherwise made, but there was a big umbrella over the industry, too, so that less efficient competitors still did very well. We do not we, we do not find the environment, which is going to be lower profits, we do not find that undesirable at all. I mean, we, 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 uh, we do not like having a huge umbrella over an industry. Uh, we want the most efficient Uh, to be the ones that that do well and and the less efficient ones that have plenty of problems. So we are not unhappy about the fact that margins in in the auto insurance uh, business are going down. We think they should go down. We will, as long as we feel that we are adding policyholders at a cost that's less than their net value to us over time, we will continue to do it and we'll love to do it, but we won't be making The kind of money in the year 2000 that we made in 1999 which was not as good as 1998 but that doesn't that's as far as we're concerned that's fine because uh we will be the low cost producer over time or will i mean that is our goal and i think we've got a lot of things going in our direction to enable us to do that the low cost producer in a huge industry uh is going to do very well over time and then the question is just is it costs money to sign up people and bring them into our fold then we have to keep them in our fold and that and we lose some every year it's an hourglass problem to a degree but that's all part of the equation and the geico equation is fundamentally good it's not as good as it was a couple of years ago just in terms of overall profitability because there isn't this big umbrella over the whole industry but that umbrella was going to go away and 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 it doesn't hurt us to have it go away at all Uh, the second thing is that we are as i pointed out in the report It is costing us more to develop inquiries than did a couple of years ago. We knew that would be the case. It's going to cost more three years from now than it costs now. So we believe in pouring it on, and we think that we can attract business at a lower cost and then run it at a lower cost than most of the competition, if not all. And we intend to plow ahead with that. uh, We will write... I said the industry, in the annual report I ventured that the industry might write at three points worse than last year. Well, three points on $120 billion of volume is $3.6 billion difference in the profitability if that forecast happens to be correct. Uh, that bothers us not at all. In fact, we will not only take that three points of industry worse, worsening, but on top of that, we will spend even more money to bring in business, which makes our will make our figures specifically look that much worse in the near term. But that, uh, you know, in in the end, it is so much more attractive uh, to bring in that kind of business, we'll say, than some e-retailer who is losing cash by the ton, bringing in customers who are spending far, far less than our customers spend with us, and where the retention rate, uh, I would venture to say, will be lower than our kind of retention rate. I mean, we've, we've we've got a very good business model. It's not as good as it was a couple of years ago. Uh, it's probably better than it will be a couple of years from now, but it's still far superior, I think, to the business model of most of the uh, competition. We've got a great machine at Geico, and we've got a sensational man running it. And Tony nicely, I mean, he is the best in the world at, uh, at running that business. And he's been there since he was 18 years old, and he knows it every way from Sunday in terms of how to run that business. I've, I've known Tony for good many years. I've never heard him say anything that didn't make sense. I mean, it's really interesting. Uh, if you take a whole bunch of people with 140 IQs, uh, it's, it's a very uneven performance in, in what they actually do. I mean, some of them say all kinds of things that make a lot of sense about 90% of the time, and then 10% of the time, you know, they go crazy. And Tony is, Tony, everything Tony, Tony says and does makes sense. And uh, he is a... He's a huge, huge asset to Berkshire, and he's working with a business model that's very, very powerful. Charlie?
2: Nothing to add.
0: Okay. Number four.
2: Uh,
14: Good afternoon, Mr. Buffett, Mr. Munger. My name is uh, Andrew Soule, and I'm from New York City. Um, I was hoping if you wouldn't mind turning your attention to Mid-America Energy. Uh, You've spoken about how much you respect uh, the management of that company, but if you could elaborate upon what you see are the uh, long-term competitive advantages of Mid-America Energy, uh, where you see the company 10 years from now, and is it your hope or your intention to make Mid-America Energy the lowest cost provider of electricity in the United States?
0: Well, you're not going to do a great deal about the embedded costs that you have in generation. I mean, if you have a group of of plants, uh, they are, in the the United States, they're relatively low-cost generation, but if somebody else has a hydro plant or something that has built-in advantages that are going to enable them to turn out electricity, you know, cheaper uh, than we can do it in Iowa with coal, so be it. I mean, it, 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 so it is. It is relatively well positioned as a generator, but but it, we have n- nothing we could do there to specifically dramatically change the cost of generation compared to other competitors. But and you shouldn't expect to make extraordinary profits in a business that is selling an essential like electricity to virtually every consumer in the country i mean it would uh, the whole idea behind uh the utility industry is not to allow extraordinary profits but we think it's a very good business we do think that Dave Sokol has demonstrated ability in the time he has been running that to come up with a lot of ideas about doing various things that that, that have made sense various projects not everything works but his batting average is very high and a good mind like that uh you know we will We'll expect that uh, he'll produce more ideas over time, but it's not the sort of thing you get fireworks in. Uh, it's conceivable that, you know, we would get a chance to do something very big in that field at some time, just because it's a big field. I mean, it is the kind of field where you can write a $5 billion check, so it's, it's not the jelly bean business. but. Uh, whether we do or not depends on a lot of things, including regulatory restraints, because there are a lot of rules in that business, starting with the Public Utility Holding Company and Act of 1935. Um, but there may be ways to do some very big things, and, and we've got the right management to do it, we've got the financial wherewithal to do it, and we'll see what happens. I think Mid-America is a very—we'll get—in my view, we're very likely to get a very decent return on on it, uh but we shouldn't get a we shouldn't get an extraordinary return because it doesn't it doesn't that kind of business Charlie nothing to have. okay number five uh,
8: Mr. Buffett my name is John Shane from Nashville Tennessee um, I want to join the other shareholders and thank you for the results you've achieved but also for the uh, example that you've set for uh, business generally my question is about float proceeds and whether they can go into common stocks. You've been asked that question before in prior years once. I asked you something on that, and I think at least one other shareholder has. But I'm wondering if you might go into a little more detail. Uh, if I've understood you in the past, you've said yes, you can. the float's available to go into common stocks. Um, I think it's an important question because it affects the intrinsic value of that float. If that float is locked into fixed income, it's worth one thing. If it could go into stocks at one point, it's obviously worth uh, quite a bit more. What I've had trouble understanding is I think you must have some way that you can guarantee that the policyholders will be protected. Obviously, you can invest everything in a low market and the market goes even lower. Um, is it simply the size of the capital you've got that you think that'd be extraordinarily unlikely, or do you use future insurance uh, revenues, premium in, uh, premium revenues to pay off claims? Um, would you borrow to, to pay off claims um if you could give some detail on that maybe we could get sure. some comfort as to how you're thinking about that yeah the,
0: the float in no way is is limited to fixed income securities the float is really available for anything that we feel isn't the most intelligent at any given time and the reason we can say that and other insurance companies can't say that is because we have an incredible abundance of capital plus other streams of earning power which are unrelated to the uh, insurance business. So we could have the float entirely in equities, and we have had that in the past, uh, tantamount to that. And we could have we could have a lot of it in operating businesses. We, we can have it any place that makes the most sense. But the only reason we can do that is because we have extraordinary capital and we don't have much debt. Uh... We run the business differently than, or think about it differently than probably 90% of managements do. We look at the assets on a consolidated basis with a few little exceptions. We look at the asset and the liability side uh, completely absent any linkage for specific assets and liabilities. So our job at Berkshire is to get the liabilities as cheaply as possible. We want all the liabilities we can get and not have any worries about about fulfilling as cheap as we can, plus a lot of capital. And then we want all the assets to be employed as intelligently as possible. And we don't match up, you know, a billion dollars of assets on the asset side against a billion of specific liabilities on on, on, on on the right-hand side. There's a one or two exceptions to that, but that's uh, where we're required to. But that's the basic approach. So, when Charlie and I think about Berkshire. We're thinking about how do we get as much money as we can, as cheap as we can, without in any way endangering our ability ever to pay anybody under any circumstances. And then, how do we put it out in a way that we feel the most comfortable on the asset side, uh, at the best returns? And frequently, that will be equities, and it has been over the past. Uh, sometimes we, it won't be. I mean, we can't find them, but. But that's the goal, and, and the float is available just like—in virtually all cases—just like common equity. We, we don't distinguish those in our mind. Uh, and that gives us—that flexibility gives us some edge, and perhaps quite an edge at times, uh, over other—over our competitors. Charlie?
2: Well, yeah, you can
0: see that in the results to date.
2: We have used that edge in the past and we hope to use it in the future.
15: Number six. Hi, I am Kevin Pilon from Simsbury, Connecticut. Let me just say quickly that I'm really looking forward to Charlie's book and I hope it uh, expands on the talks he uh, gave that were reported in OID with regard to having a certain number of models that you need to uh, to understand and prosper in life. I have two questions and I'll ask them quickly in succession because uh, you may want to punt on the first one. Uh, The the first question is, I'm interested in any comments you might have uh, that uh, would expand on your general interest in the branded apparel companies, Liz Claiborne and, and Jones. And the second question is, I wonder uh, if you would comment on the future of Freddie Mac with all the current brouhaha. Every year there's new brouhaha, as you, as you know, with the, uh, the uh, buyback of the 30-year bond and the search for a new benchmark and the Treasury saying that perhaps agency securities were not backed by the full faith and credit of the government.
0: Yeah, we're not going to be able to help you too much on some of those because we may have some views, but they may be things that we don't really want to talk about. The uh, the Liz Claiborne and the Jones Apparel investments you're talking about, the Jones Apparel is a decision that was made by Lou Simpson at GEICO. Lou runs a separate portfolio of equities uh, for Berkshire. He I mean, they're held in GEICO, but... Obviously, they're for uh, the account of Berkshire. And that portfolio is uh, well over $2 billion. Uh, and to some extent, it can be expanded or contracted based on what Lou would like to do. Uh, and he runs that 100% on his own. And he's compensated based on how that portfolio does. Uh, he makes decisions buying and selling without talking to me at all, which is the way we like it. Uh, sometimes there's an overlap in our decisions, uh, but when I, for, for example, when I first found out about Jones Apparel, I, I'd never read an annual report of the company. I didn't know what they did or anything. And but that's, you know, that's Lou's baby, and he's very good at managing money, and he's a fellow that has 100% of my trust. Um, so I, I know his general criteria for investing, which is quite similar to mine, not identical, but quite similar to mine, and and he's got a familiarity with businesses that, again, is quite similar to mine, but not identical. And he runs a a good portfolio, and it makes life a little easier for me not to have that two and a fraction billion that added to all the rest that I'm having trouble investing. Uh, Liz Claiborne came about a little differently. I got a call one weekend, actually, on on purchasing a large block that someone was going to sell, and... uh, uh, we bought that uh, on a monday morning in london i remember that it, it it was never reported on any exchange I don't, i'm not quite sure even how it happened but uh, the broker that handled it uh uh arranged the trade over there and you know they've had a they've had a very very decent record they buy in their shares i like the business uh, that they run uh it's not a coca-cola type business or a gillette type business or even an american express business but uh we were offered that stock at a very attractive price and it's, 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 it's worked out fine. The Freddie question, I'd rather not get into it, frankly, because there's a lot of political overtones to that. But, um, Charlie?
2: <laughs> I can pass as well as you can.
3: Okay. <laughs> Number seven. Guresh Paku from uh, Croton, New York. Um, first regarding, I just have a couple of questions. First regarding the succession issue, I just can't imagine that you would allow someone else to paint over your picture <laughs> um afterwards i guess post truck um so i was wondering would the would the uh, <laughs> is your is the nature of your succession plans more of a caretaker role of the museum or uh is it more active that's the first. it
0: would be more active no the last thing in the world i would want would be a caretaker that would be uh, no that would that would not i would not want that to be my legacy
3: Uh, The second question is regarding inflation. Uh, While I appreciate your focus on the specific businesses and uh, your uh, uh, insistence that you not try to predict it uh, We've been very fortunate by successively lower rates of inflation, and I'm wondering with all of the money sloshing around and between real estate and stocks and all the other places uh, whether you are concerned about inflation what effect that would have on the insurance businesses of Berkshire and uh, uh, what, what you can do to guard against those risks. Yeah.
0: My record is just terrible uh, in terms of, of predicting the uh, inflation rate. So it is not something that enters into our decision-making. The big danger in a, a speed-up of inflation would, would lead to more dollar volume in the insurance business, and more dollar volume is basically good for us even though there might be a lag in pricing, that would eventually catch up and all that. So absent the next factor I'm going to mention, uh, uh, inflation is not necessarily harmful at all to something like a GEICO. As you get into longer tail liability lines, such as a General Re might have, inflation has this effect of hitting liabilities that were created four, five, ten years earlier maybe, and they get settled in current dollars, and, and obviously that, that ratchets up the cost of settling those liabilities uh, in kind of an unpredictable way. The danger in inflation to something like GEICO would be that people get buried, during inflation, they get irritated about the price of everything going up, and there's some things they can do something about, and there's others they can't. And then there's some they think they can't, even though they can't, and one of those might be the cost of insurance. So the... People might get very upset with the system of auto insurance when they see a very significant part of their annual budget, because the auto insurance policy, on average, is significant to people and uh, virtually every consumer in the country. And there could be a lot of pressure on legislat- legislatures to do a variety of things that might change the system in a, in a major way. It wouldn't. Wouldn't reduce the number of cars that crashed into each other or the injuries that were done or anything else, but it would be a way of striking out against against higher uh, higher rates, and people would be unhappy about those rates, and that also might reflect itself in in difficulty getting the increases that were required to take care of the costs that were ratcheting up uh, fast. So, net, I think inflation is bad uh, for the auto insurance business, uh, although. You can argue that, you know, Geico – I think when I when I first got interested in Geico, they had about a – it was in 1951, I wrote it up in Security I like best, I think they had about 175,000 policies, and I think they were writing about 7 million of business, which would be about 40 bucks a policy. Now, if we were getting $40 a policy now, you know, our, our premium volume would be – the company would be a whole lot less valuable than it is. And uh, so one way or another it ended up going from that period of $40 dollars an average policy to twelve or1100 dollars in average policy without the, the roof caving in on it. And, and uh, uh, it has been made more valuable in dollar terms by a combination of inflation and a great business model without it getting destroyed in the process. Nevertheless, I, I would prefer a non-inflationary environment. It, it's better for the whole world. Uh, uh, over time, and and that that's the way that's the way our hope goes, and then we have this so far unwarranted fear that uh, uh, the kind of conditions that have existed over the last five, 15 years might cause a reignition of inflation, which to date it hasn't. I don't know any more about what's going to happen than you do, though, on that. Charlie. Mm-hmm.
2: I don't know anything either.
0: <laughs> uh, number eight.
16: Good afternoon, gentlemen. My name is Zeke Turner, and uh, currently finishing up my senior year at Taylor University in Indiana. Four more weeks, and I'm out of there.
4: Um,
16: as someone studying finance, I uh, do appreciate your comments as to uh, the teaching of investment in academia. It uh, certainly has uh, some development that can make there. Uh, I do say that with hope that very few grad school admissions officers are listening right now. Um, but I do want to say a special thank you, uh, quickly, if I could, to all those professors who. Uh, have the intelligence and uh, the guts to actually teach value investing on that level uh, and go away from efficient market theories. Um, I do kind of wish Benjamin Graham were still teaching. Uh, many questions have been asked as far as technology and its development uh, into the business model. Uh, I think the greatest effect of this will probably be in the globalization of the economy. Uh, this has had and will continue to have a uh, significant impact on the business model as we know it today. Now, uh, except for certain growth opportunities, they may have a smaller effect on companies such as Seize Candy or Nebraska Furniture Mart, uh, but has, a, had, has had and will continue to have a dramatic effect on companies like Gillette, Coke, who have significant international presence. My question is, how does your approach trai- change, if at all, in light of the international expansion? I'm particularly interested in the introduction of greater difficulty in understanding the business models in the understanding of the economic future and the economic risk associated with the international scene. In addition, do you actively search for a global scene for investment opportunities?
0: Yeah, the answer is that we obviously like businesses that are good businesses at, at present volume and that have the chances to expand significantly with similar economics. And with any business that's been around the United States a long time, there's probably more opportunity, potentially anyway, around the rest of the world than here. And Coke is growing faster, although it's grown well, here, but it's grown faster around the world than here, and that's been true at Gillette also, just because we were a more mature market. So, we love the idea of products that will travel. Some travel well, some don't. I mean, it's an incredible world that way. Uh, candy bars don't seem to travel so well. You know, uh, 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 soft drinks travel terrifically, uh, and razor blades travel terrifically, but, but the Cadbury Bar- bars sell in England, and you know, and the, and the Hershey bars sell here. And it's It's very hard with some items to try. In fact, within this country, it's amazing to me, we talk about having a mobile society, you know, and people are moving all the time and we're all watching the same television, everything else. And the supermarket share of Dr. Pepper in Dallas is 18 and a fraction percent. And in Boston, it's six-tenths of one percent. I mean, 18 to 0.6, 30 times the market share. Dr. Pepper's been around forever. You know, people move back and forth and everything, and how can you have that sort of a differential in this country? Royal Crown Cola, 3 percent in Chicago, one-tenth of a percent, you know, maybe in Detroit, you know, a couple hundred miles away, same kind of people, all of that sort of thing. And Royal Crown's been around for 75 years, or whatever it may be, 50 years at least. And you get these incredible differences in what people do even within this country. So it's not easy to predict uh, how—if you can't predict how Dr. Pepper—or you can't figure out how to make—if Dr. I owned Dr. Pepper and was selling 18 percent of the market in in, in the supermarkets of Dallas, it would drive me crazy. You know, I was getting six-tenths of a percent in in, in Boston, or I think it's five-tenths maybe in Detroit. That would drive me crazy, Uh, although maybe I should just be grateful that I've got 18 percent in Dallas. Uh, It just—it's very hard to predict how— how how products will travel with C's candy, you know, with this incredible penetration in the West and particularly in California, we know it's the best candy. Now box chocolates just do not sell big in the, in this country. The, the annual consumption is low, but it still seems that if we can make a, a a lot of money in California, we ought to be able to make some money in New York or Pennsylvania. But we haven't figured out how to do it, and we've tried a lot of things. So. The answer is we're always interested in geographical expansion, whether it's even in the United States or going beyond that into other countries. It's not as easy as it looks, uh, but when the chance to do it comes, you know, then you ought to just pound and pound and pound. And, and we, um, we occasionally have bought stocks in other countries. I wrote a fellow the other day that I read about in Germany. Uh, about his business, I've never met him or anything else, but it sounded like he had a pretty good business, and sounded like he might be my type of guy. So I just wrote him a letter. Haven't heard back either, but uh, I may. Uh, the odds are against it, but I would. It sounded to me like I'd buy his business uh, uh, if he chose to wrote, write back and, and wanted to do something. And we're very willing to do business, you know, in any country in the world where we think we understand the, the nuances of the corporate governance system and taxation and that sort of thing. I mean, we don't understand all 200 countries by a long shot, but there's plenty we'd love to be in business in. We we looked at it, a very significant company in Japan a couple of years ago, and uh, some other fellow I know uh, bought it and has done very well. Uh, it would have made sense for us, and, and we missed it. We will continue to look at things internationally it, it makes a lot of sense and we got a lot of capital to employ we're more likely by by some margin to find things here but we may find a big one uh, outside of this country charlie uh, n- nothing to add okay number
17: one i'm john bailey from uh, boston massachusetts uh, you commented in the annual report that only part of GEICO's marketing expense last year was required to maintain the business. Uh, This seems to get to the heart of owner earnings where in the first part you can value the existing business very well through this observation and you get a direct measure of the dollars invested in new business. And it seems that you should be able to make similar observations about uh, other businesses that you may be interested in investing in so could you use this as a jumping off point to describe examples perhaps of how you contemplate companies marginal investment opportunities or their return on marginal capital and how much weight do you give to the value of the existing business in your investment decisions or the value of the uh, so to speak enforced book
0: well we as we explained earlier are looking for ways to create more than a dollar of value per dollar we lay out we'd love to create three dollars of value or four dollars of value but we'll settle for a dollar ten cents if that's all we can get we don't consciously make decisions that are 90 cent decisions for a, a dollar laid out none of this is that precise when you get into the application of it uh what we do know is that there's enough of a margin at Say a GEICO expansion effort, that it's pretty compelling that it makes sense. Part of the limitation there, as I explained in the report, too, is, is a question of infrastructure and all of that. Uh, so it isn't solely a question of saying, you know, can we lay out another dollar and will that have a value of ten? because if, if we strain the organization uh, beyond its uh, ability to service people, we may be hurting the book business already on the books. I use the GEICO example in the report because it's big enough so it's meaningful to shareholders. I mean, we're doing things all the time that cost us money in the short run that we think will more than produce a commensurate value over time, but not on the scale that we're doing at GEICO currently, and we may step up that scale even. Uh, uh, So I thought it important to lay out those figures, even though I can't be precise. When I say, you know, that it might be $50 million to maintain, I don't know that. Figure, uh, it could be 70, it could be 30, uh, you know, maybe I'm off even more than that. But I, that's my best guess, and I think the shareholders are entitled to my best guess, and they're entitled to know how much we are spending beyond that maintenance cost to build the business for the future, uh, which we don't obviously capitalize on the balance sheet. Uh, um, so those, Geico's by far the most dramatic, and, and, and we don't have comparable expenditures like that going on elsewhere. But we are spending significant money, for example, to take net jets to Europe, and we'll be spending it this year and next year, and then as soon as that starts looking good, we'll be going to Asia and spending more money. I mean, all of those decisions are made that way. They're not on the scale of the GEICO uh, uh, decision, though, uh, at all. We want to give you the information in the report that, related to the size of the enterprise, would be material to Charlie or me if we were reading the report and not involved in the business in trying to figure out what our investment was all about that's the goal and what we write and then to keep it to to a size that uh, doesn't have to be sent ups Uh, incident i'm 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 glad i got wandering along on that line because we did have a lot of shareholders this year that got their reports uh, even later than they received them in past years now they were delivered the, 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 the reports that go to, to registered holders were put in the mail a few days after we go up on the internet here in Omaha, and that's, they seem to get delivered okay. Uh, street name holders, which are 10 times uh, in number what the re- registered holders are, so we're really talking about nine out of 10 shareholders, get their reports from a, a firm in New Jersey that is designated by their broker to take the reports from us and remail them. We pay those people a fair amount of money to do that. We know when we deliver those reports to them, which is promptly, and we know when they tell us that they send them out, and we inquire every day or more than once a day to find out whether they've gone out. And And we got a lot of complaints this year that people hadn't received them at a time when you would have thought they would have received them. So we can either we know when we know when the, uh, the designated mailer uh, received them. We don't know for sure when they got them out, and we don't know for sure what happens at the post office. But, but we were—the mailing went out about the same as in previous years, but the receipt apparently was somewhat later, and all we can say is that we apologize, but we don't have any better system. The people that have them in their own name uh, will always get them dropped in the mail a couple of days uh, after the report appears on the internet. Uh, we can assure you of that. We can't assure you of when the street name holders uh, will get their get their reports because uh, that is a mailing that we, we don't handle and no other companies handle them, to my knowledge. There's this, there is a firm that seems to do about 95% of that and is designated by the, the specific broker uh, with whom you have your shares. Charlie, you got anything to add? Okay, number two.
6: Uh, Hi, Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munker. My name is Will Obendorf. I'm from San Francisco, California, and I'm 11 years old. I have been a shareholder for six years at Berkshire Hathaway. My questions are, what are GEICO's sustainable competitive advantages? And my other one is, what are the implications of the internet on pricing for the auto insurance industry?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to get your name and send it to human relations or whatever they call those departments. We want to hire you. Uh, the sustainable competitive advantage at GEICO is to be the low-cost producer providing very good service. and there will be a number of companies that provide good service. So that, that does not distinguish us from a great many competitors. Having the low cost uh, is crucial. There are companies that specialize in given groups of share, uh, policyholders, but smaller groups, uh, such as USAA, that have very good costs. So they are very, very competitive with us in their chosen area. Uh, There's another company in Los Angeles that geographically called 21st Century Insurance that has costs like ours, and so they are extremely competitive within that geographic area. I don't think anybody is any better than us who operates nationwide. We don't operate in in Massachusetts or New Jersey, but in the other 40 states, we will have a quote for about anyone. So in terms of a broad-based insurance, auto insurance competitor, our competitive advantage has to be low cost over time. Now we also have to be as good at distinguishing among the risks posed by different kinds of drivers as other people. In other words, we have to be able to select people who are going to be better than average drivers, and we have to be able to understand who was likely to be a poorer than average driver. But and the ability to do that, to distinguish those people, would be a competitive advantage. I think that many companies tend to be fairly equal on that point. So it's really at this cost level, and we we care very much about costs, the same way that Charlie mentioned a company called Costco does, you know, in terms of retailing. They they figure their expense ratios out to hundreds of a percent, and 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 that that is important. So that is that is the competitive advantage. Now when you get and we have to sustain and widen that if possible. The question of the Internet, uh, it's going to be very important. It already is important to GEICO. It will be more and more important. It will be important to the insurance industry. Because when you have the Internet, you have a situation where somebody thinking about insuring a car can click to one place, find out what that rate will be. They can click to someplace else and find out what that rate will be. So in effect, they can shop all around without going from place to place to place and driving all over town or calling lots of agents. They can just do it right there in their, in their, in their, in their den. And that makes it very important, again, that we be the low-cost company. It, I think it's going to be an advantage for us over time. For one thing, I think it makes brand very important because we want people to be thinking of GEICO as one of the possibilities to call. And if you've got the XYZ company that nobody's ever heard of, nobody's going to think about clicking on them. And Geico's brand is is becoming extremely familiar to people throughout the country, and we're spending a lot of money to make it even more familiar. So you've asked two very good questions, and I, I think we're in pretty good shape on both of them. Thank you. Charlie, number three.
16: Good afternoon, Mr. Berkshire
10: Mr. Hathaway. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my name is Anthony Priest. I'm from Washington, D.C. Uh, a couple months ago, I saw an ad in the Wall Street Journal where it said Berkshire Hathaway wants to see real estate finance opportunities in excess of $100 million. I was curious about your thoughts in this area, real estate field, some of your goals, if you can talk about any of the deals you may have made, and if Donald Trump has given you a call yet.
0: <laughs> I don't think Donald Trump will give us a call. <laughs> uh, we have got about um, what three deals uh, that we've put on in the last couple of years in real estate, and they are in this hundred million dollar and up category. And and we're willing to put billions and billions of dollars in if we can find the right uh, sort of uh, opportunities, or nothing may happen depending on uh, just depending on the market. We don't. We don't have most a lot of places have a mortgage department or they have a real estate department and they sort of have a budget and they put money out based on using up the budget and they have a whole bunch of people that don't have a job unless they do that we, that's not the way we operate at berkshire we're willing if the deals are right you know we'll, we'll do many billions If the deals aren't right we don't have anybody whose job is dependent on keeping busy in a field like that so we look at the deals when they come in mike goldberg is in charge of that operation and we kick things around. He's in the office right next to mine. So if he hears about a deal, you know, we'll discuss it for three minutes and we'll sort of know whether it passes the first threshold and then we'll go on to the second and the third. But we don't waste a lot of time on things. And we don't care whether we make another deal or not. We'd like to if the terms are right. Um, And that ad produced some inquiries, not from Donald Trump. uh, And you know, one or two, there's one or two, a couple of them are alive at the present time, and we'll see whether they work out. Real estate deals, by their nature, take longer to to um, put to bed than the kind of thing we normally do. In fact, I can buy a business faster than we can make a real estate deal, usually. Uh, that's just the way they work. Um, but we could end up with, uh, I mean, we're very happy with the three deals that we've got. Uh, they're They're good uses of money. And I hope we find a lot more, but but if we don't, I won't uh, won't I won't be upset. Uh, Charlie, do you have anything to add? Charlie's our real estate expert. Huh?
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hardly.
12: We
0: we are not financing Charlie's boat, incidentally, despite the rumors. <laughs> Number four.
12: Hi, my name is Joel. I'm an undergraduate student at the University of Virginia. Uh, just I have two questions. My first question is, how important do you think the structure of your fund is to its long-term success? And by that, I mean, in in the last couple of weeks, some other legendary investors like Julian Robertson and Stanley Druckenmiller have been forced to either close or restructure their funds as a result of a kind of vicious cycle of underperformance and subsequent redemptions, and then even worse performance. Do you think that the structure of your fund as a publicly traded company, as opposed to a private partnership like Tiger and Quantum, has protected your business from a similar fate? or phrased a different way, do you think that if Tiger or Quantum were were structured the way that Berkshire Hathaway is, that they might still be in business in the same way today?
0: Yeah, we, we don't consider ourselves in remotely the same business as Tiger or so. I mean, they're they are managing a securities operation, and we aren't doing anything like what they do. So they, they have, 30 years ago, when I had the partnership, it was much more, along their lines, although still far from what they do. But it was structured much more like what they did. And, I, and although we had bought control of businesses and all that, we were fu- functioning much more uh, – or focusing much more on securities. We don't care whether we own another uh, – whether we own a stock or a bond, and, you know, and, and we will over the next 20 years. But that is not – that's not what we're about. We're not a fund. It, you know, we are an operating business that generates a lot of capital. And, and uses that to buy other businesses in whole or part. Uh, and we prefer in whole, but we, we sometimes do it in part. But I would, uh, I don't consider, which is a reason why I don't consider book value that important, although it, it, it's got the importance I, I attributed it to it earlier. But we, we could easily uh, have 90% of the value of Berkshire 10 years from now be represented by businesses that we own and 10 percent by securities or we could very easily have 60 or 70 percent represented by securities depending on how markets develop i hope it develops in the former way but but i'm perfectly willing to go the other way too but it it, it just has no relationship to the the kind of funds you talk about and they we, we are structured poorly from a tax standpoint uh, compared to those fellows and uh, and compared to what I used to have, that's you know that's a decision we made, and, uh, and we're stuck with it more or less. It, it's not a it's not it's not a great tax structure if you're going to own securities, but we may not own that many securities over time. Charlie?
2: Well, I do think that the people in the relative performance game who are trying to attract so-called hot money are living in a totally different world from ours. I mean, Soros, in the end, was not willing to have a lot of people make a lot of money in uh, high-tech stocks and not be part of that game. And, and, uh, And they got killed. We're perfectly willing to let something we don't understand very well rage on while a lot of other people make a lot of money we don't.
0: Yeah, we. Well, it, it's just not a securities operation that we have. It, 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 we own a lot of securities uh, at present, and we'll probably own a lot five or ten years from now. But it's not. It's not. It's not what Berkshire is necessarily about. Um, ideally, you know, I would love it if we could move all the money in securities into businesses that we liked. Um, but that's got, that isn't going to happen, in all probability. It's just—it's too tough because we can't find multi-billion-dollar businesses uh, to buy, right and left. We find a few, but they tend to be small. Uh, number five.
13: My name is Paul Tomasik from Chicago. My question is about intellectual honesty, and your incredible ability of rising intellectual, intellectual honesty in organizations. In particular, you look at General Re, a, a large, well-managed, publicly traded firm. And if you think about it, if you raise the intellectual honesty in an organization like that, initially you're going to have an aberration, as you called it. In particular, Berkshire Hathaway was the first company to write down the UNA, what is it, UNA cover, write down whereas Aon pushed it on into the year 2000. Can you comment? Give us some hints on how you raise the intellectual honesty in an organization. And somebody whispered in my ear they wanted to know Charlie's reading list. I guess they finished Guns, Germs, and Steel. Thank
0: you. We don't we really don't want to buy into any organization that we felt would be lacking that quality in the in the in the first place because we we really don't believe in buying into organizations to change them. We may you know, we may change the comp system a little or something of the sort. But I'm not gonna name names, but there are a whole lot of organizations that if we bought into them we wouldn't we wouldn't move their needle one point in in, in terms of how they operate and we wouldn't be comfortable with how they operated. So we try to buy into organizations that we think are very much like ours at Bedrock. And uh, General Ree would have recognized that unicover loss just as quickly if we hadn't known it as, as we had. Now, that was not true of some other people, but, but, but they didn't need any prodding from us uh, in order to realize something like that. We want people joining us who already are the type that face reality and that, 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 tell us, that basically tell us the truth, but tell themselves the truth, which is even more important. And once you get an organization that lies to itself, and there are plenty that do, uh, I just think you get into all kinds of problems. And people know it throughout the organization, and they adopt the, they adopt the norms of, 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 of what they think is happening up above them. And particularly in a financial organization, really in any organization, but particularly in a financial organization, you know, that, 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 is, that is death over time. Uh, and um, you know, we, we wouldn't buy into something that we felt had that problem. Uh, with the idea that we could we would correct it because we wouldn't it, you know it we charlie and i have had a little experience with some organizations that that have had that sort of problem and and it's not correctable uh at least you know based on the lifespan of humans it, it, it it's uh, too much to commit to charlie
2: well i think you're totally right about general rea uh, we didn't improve behavior at General Rhee, they they already had a behavior just like ours. And regarding a reading list, I didn't read one book last year that I thought was a Lollapalooza. Uh, Therefore, I didn't make any recommendations to that bookstore at the airport.
0: Charlie, how many books do you think you read, though? He he reads a lot. (laughs) Well,
2: I, I don't count, and some some of them I skim through pretty fast. But but there was no Lollapalooza. A, a book like Guns, Germs, and Steel doesn't come along every year. Okay. And by the way, that guy was a little nuts in one
0: way. <laughs> it's hard to get an A from Charlie.
7: <laughs> okay. Is it six? We're going to. Uh, hello, my name is James Armstrong from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thanks for having us. I'd like you to comment, please, on the reinsurance business and how it might look over the next 10 or 20 years. At Berkshire, we've usually bought businesses that are insulated to some degree from easy entry by new competitors and from commodity-type <coughs> pricing. We want businesses that possess defensible franchises, few substitutes, <coughs> resistance to cyclical factors, etc. <coughs> The reinsurance business carries a lot of characteristics that are the opposite of what we usually look for. There's a lot of excess capacity. We're hindered by irrational, and <coughs> unwise pricing decisions by competitors. For Gen Re to prove out as an investment for us, we need better underwriting, and we also need prices to harden. But in a world with great global liquidity, where capital moves very rapidly from place to place, why wouldn't the reinsurance business gradually evolve into a poor business where all excess returns are competed away, where price is never firm for very long because a new entrant arises and throws capital at the business. So I'd like you to get a comment on how re can be made to work and also give us a broad view of how the reinsurance business might unfold over the next 10 or 20 years. Thanks. Okay. You,
0: you've made some good points. And, um, I would, you know, we have been actually in the reinsurance business at, at Berkshire Hathaway for 30 years, so it's it's a business obviously that we paid a lot of attention to and we've uh, gotten some scars from at times but overall we've done extremely well and the reason we've done extremely well is because we've had a absolutely sensational manager in Ajit Jain who I wrote about uh... running that business But Ajit is a good example of what somebody with brains and energy and discipline and the right temperament and some capital behind him can do in a business. It's 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 not the world's most efficient business, and it never will be the world's most efficient business, because it's not it, it's not strictly actuarial. It, 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 all excess returns will not be competed away. There will be people that will earn very subnormal returns in the business. There will be people that get killed in the business, and that means there will be quite a deviation uh, from the mean in terms of the results of individual insurers and we think that both at national indemnity under ajit and a general re that we have advantages so that our returns will be significantly better than average but both of our businesses are subject to getting killed in any single year will get killed in specific years but also in our view will do uh, better than average and more than satisfactory in terms of, of uh, Berkshire Hathaway's results. Um, you know, I can't prove that to you now. I can show you what's happened over the past years. I don't think the situation in reinsurance is way different than some years back. There's, there's, there are always dumb competitors. There's always a lot of capital in the business. In the 1985-1986 period, people felt very poor. But it wasn't really a lack of financial capital; it was psychological capital that disappeared. People were just plain scared, and that was the best of times uh, to be writing business. Obviously, you know, we we like to, uh, the, the pr- prices are somewhat better now, but there are always people that uh, that misevaluate risk, and when they misevaluate risk, you know, it's our job to let them have the business that's easier to do with a jeep's business and national indemnity than it is with general re because general re is uh... has long-term relationships with many accounts and 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 the the question of what's what you do when your competitor offers a price that's uh... a little too low business with for fifty years is a very tough decision to make and so sometimes they probably do some business that, that might be labeled as uh, necessarily evil, and Charlie always says that he doesn't mind an occasional transaction like that as long as you underline evil and not necessary. Uh, and, uh, the, the nature of people in the business usually, particularly the frontline guy who is, who is calling on the account, is to underline necessary, and as owners, our, 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 uh, our tendency is to underline evil. Uh, Jen has done a terrific job over the years of balancing uh, the necessity of continuing relationships along with the discipline of making sure they get paid enough. Uh, that was not done perfectly last year, and uh, uh the conditions were very difficult for doing it perfectly, I might add, too. Um, but I think that both at the JEETS operation and the General Ree, we, we have two businesses that will do very well in terms of what we get out of them and very well compared to their competition. Uh, and, but occasionally we'll have a very bad year. I mean, we could have something happen tomorrow, you know, a, a Tokyo earthquake or uh, uh, I, can, I can name a bunch of them that would um, uh, result in a very bad year. And that's what we're getting paid for. And if we, if we price with discipline, our 20 year results can't be bad, uh, no matter what any one year produces. And if we don't price with discipline, we'll get killed over time. Charlie? Yeah,
2: I don't think the reinsurance business is quite as much of a commodity business as might first appear. It's not like an execution transaction when you sell government bonds or something, where one broker is roughly just as good as another there's such a huge time lag between the time the premium is paid and the time the performance is given that, that you're making a the customers making a big prediction about the insurers a willingness to pay what it really owes or and b its ability to pay what it really owes i think we have a huge edge in in reputation and actuality Uh, with with reference to both those two factors.
0: Yeah, we have a reputational advantage, and I think that in actuality it's it's even stronger than the reputational advantage. I mean, uh, I can't think of a case uh, where there's been any problem with with having Berkshire or General Re write a check very promptly for for, uh, anything at all. I mean, we've— you know, we have never been subject to people suing us and getting money later on or anything like that after fighting us out in courts. It's just it's not the nature of it's not our the attitude we bring toward the reinsurance transaction and and, and uh, we have a reputational advantage, but like I say, I don't think it's quite as wide as it should be in some cases even. And then we have a huge attitudinal advantage in that we have no need. None to write more business or the same amount of business or even something close to the amount of business next year that we wrote this year. We had, there is no, there are no volume goals at Berkshire Hathaway at all. And that is not true at most insurance organizations. We report the results as we, as they come in and as we see them, which also I think gives us an advantage in being realistic about all aspects of our business. We have huge amounts of capital behind us so we can take large pieces of attractive business and keep them all for our own account. So we we have a lot of advantages in the business, and they will translate into something better than the rest of the world gets. I don't know how much better, and I don't know what the rest of the world will get, but it's it's, it's not insignificant, the, the advantages we have in the business. It's just about 3.30. We're gonna have a director's meeting, and I really appreciate you coming out. Uh, thanks, and we'll be back next year.